Welcome to the Civil War Center podcast. Learn about the battles, events, and people that shaped the turning point in American history. I'm your host, Andy Lucian. Hello, everyone. Today we're sitting down with Dan Masters. Dan Masters is an award-winning author, and he's been actively engaged in Civil War research for the past 20 years. He has a focus on Ohio infantry regiments, focus on Ohio infantry regiments, and documenting the thousands of letters contained in Ohio's newspapers during the Civil War. He also founded the Columbian Arsenal Press in 2017 with the mission of ensuring that these incredible accounts were available to a wider audience. Today, Dan sits down with us to discuss a passion of his, the war in the West, as well as mine, specifically the Battle of Stones River. I hope you enjoy this discussion. All right, great. Well, hello, everybody. Today, we are sitting down with Dan Masters to talk about the Battle of Stones River. Uh, how are you today? I'm doing great. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm excited for this. Uh, you've previously done uh, did an article for our blog uh, a mm-hmm. little while back. Uh, about the Battle of Perryville, which I greatly enjoyed, and I am, implore listeners to check out. I'll put it in the link, um, the description, as well as your blog, um, but we'll get to all that in a bit. So so first of all, introduce yourself to our listeners. Tell us a bit about yourself and uh, what it is you do exactly. Oh, <laughs> what it is I do. Um well, I am a, uh, really, I would probably classify myself more as a local historian, um, you know, years ago, Tip O'Neill was Speaker of the House um, during the Reagan administration. And Tip O'Neill always commented that all politics is local. And I, the more I the more I study history, the more I'm convinced all history is local. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, of course, broader national implications of things. We look at something like the Battle of Stones River, which is of uh, national importance. Um, when you really want to figure out the story of what happens at these places, you, you got to dive down to the localities. It, it all comes down to individuals. And so that's really what my, my focus has been on over the last oh, 25 or so years that I've been actively uh, engaged in civil war research. Um, it, so just a little more background on me. I'm from uh, Northwestern Ohio, grew up in a little town called White House. Uh, which is not so little anymore, but it was uh, pretty little when I was growing up and then in Toledo as well. And I have worked 27 years in the manufacturing industry, mostly in supply chain. I'm still actively uh, working in supply chain. Uh, married for 23 years, wife and six children, uh, oldest of whom is serving in the United States Air Force currently and the other, the other five are still running around the house as we speak. <laughs> um, but yeah, I attended University of Toledo. And it was while I was attending University of Toledo that my uh, grandmother uh, really kind of kick-started this whole, this whole historical search that I've been on since the late 90s to really understand the Civil War. And the way it started was she was going through some family papers that she had inherited from her mother, who had, had passed away a number of years before, and came across a Civil War soldier's discharge certificate. And all she knew was that we're related to this man somehow, but I don't know how to figure it out. And uh, I've got the discharge certificate sitting on my desk. Actually, I know this is a podcast and nobody can see it, but I'll show it to you just so you can see it. Hey, at least I get to see it. <laughs> you get to see it. 
but that is the discharge certificate. Oh, very cool. This belonged to my, this is the only piece of, of family uh, Civil War memorabilia that we have. Um, wow. This belonged to my great, great, great grandfather, James Morrow, who was in Company H of the 1st Ohio Volunteer Cavalry, who, interestingly enough, has a big part to play at Stones River. So a, um, what, you'll, what you'll end up finding is that my interest in Stones River really began because of the impact that battle had on my family. Now, uh, Grandpa Morrow survived, but I had an uncle who did not. And I really was intrigued by kind of his story, the story of his regiment. And I'm just, you know, the, you know it's one of those things you, you kind of put your toe in the water and the next thing you know, you're neck deep in it. So, yeah, right. Um, I kind of you know, look more at, you know, background uh, as over the years, this really started almost as like a genealogy project, you know, wanting to understand, you know, my family's connection to the Civil War. Of course, now I, I was around when the when the Ken Burns uh, Civil War series came out in, in 1990. Uh, I was a freshman in high school, and my mom was really a, um, um, a, a turning into something of a Civil War buff. She'd taken me to see the movie Glory um, either earlier that year or the year before. The great. Movie. So it was just you know these little things that um, just kind of kicked off this greater uh, greater interest in the war. And then, you know, years later, getting this discharge certificate and grandma's injunction to go find out who, find out what you can about this guy. Um, let's say here I'm 20, 25 years later, still, uh, still plugging away. I've certainly expanded far beyond just looking at, you know, the narrow confines of, you know, my, my family's experience in the war. Um, but I tell you what, it, anytime somebody posts something online, say related to one of my ancestors' regiments, I immediately pop. I get just as excited and giddy <laughs> as, uh, you know, when I first started, which is great. You know, I, I love that, you know, even, you know, having uh, written as much as I have over the years, uh, the stuff still, it still stirs the blood, you know, it, it still gets you going and it just, you know, gets those kind of those historical juices popping. Um, the advantage today is that since I have, have written, I think I uh, checked the blog this morning, I've written 660 blog posts wow. in the last five years, eight books, and it's somewhere around 2 million words about the Civil War since 2017. So, so you've been a little bit busy. I've been a little busy. <laughs> but what's, what's great about it is not only, I mean, for me, it's, it's, I love learning about this stuff. I love sharing it with other people. But kind of the more you share, the more you get back. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you put something up about, you know, say the 15th Illinois and, you know, six months down the road, somebody's sending you, hey, these I've got these uh, images of my great, great grandfather. I really liked your post and here, you know, add these to your, you know, add these to your digital library. You know, mm -hmm. you can get things like that. Um, you know, it's it, it's it's amazing how much history about the Civil War is out there. And how much of it is out there that no one knows about? Yeah, we, we've I've talked to a few guests about. <clears throat> there's been so many books written about the Civil War, and it it seems like every year there's more books, but they all have a new take. Like they're still finding mm -hmm. new perspectives, new ways to look at it, new information. It's just it's amazing that that four five year span can have such a vast wealth of material written on it. It's, it's mind blowing. Yeah. And, and I, I wonder too, you know, every generation 
you know, the, the Civil War is really like the seminal event in American history to this point. I mean, it really, I fully agree with Shelby Foote, it defined us, you know, who we were, good and bad, for the next century and a half. And each generation as it comes along looks at that event somewhat differently and has their own perspective on it. You know, obviously your generation is going to look at it a little differently than mine did. And certainly I look at it a little differently than my parents did. And, you know, we go further back differently than how the veterans themselves remember the war and what it was fought about. Um, the one thing that, that I've really kind of seen as exciting in, you know, the realm of Civil War research is you know, the Internet has been, I mean, I, I'm, I'm old enough that I was around before there was an <laughs> Internet to do research. I still remember using a card catalog at the uh, downtown Toledo Library. And, uh, you know, microfilm machines, I'm, I'm probably losing my, my eyesight slowly due to all the years <laughs> of staring at a microfilm machine. Um, and I, I did write my first book back in 2002. So that was kind of written in the, it, the Internet was around, but it was still kind of in its infancy. Um, most of that research was done the old way, uh, quote unquote, you know, card catalogs and photocopies and uh, of course, it you know was written on um, you know, Microsoft Word and whatnot. But it was uh, when I think of how long I worked on that book, and you know, I was able to find a lot of information, but a lot of information was hard to get. And how anymore? It's like you know, I I could write literally with the resources out there anymore. I mean, you can pound this stuff out in a, a tenth of the time that it used to take you. If you know, if once you know what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. And that, that's always the key. You know, the, the Internet's a, a vast minefield. You got to know how to pick your way through it. Yeah, definitely. I, as a side note, I think you win the award for the closest person to me. You're the first guest I've had in Ohio. So I'm an Akron. Uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I think you win the award for the, the first Ohio guest that I've had. Um, but yeah, so so I would love to talk about your grandfather and some of the Ohio uh, OVI units that were in Stones River as well later on. Um, okay. Per personal connection to me. I, I reenact the 66th OVI. Oh, great. Um, so, yeah. So I, I have a little bit of an Ohio connection. I don't have any ancestors who fought, but okay. uh, I got a little bit of a connection. Well, so. One of my favorite, favorite books that I wrote over the last several years was Army Life According to Arbaugh. And that is a collection of letters from the quartermaster, William A. Brand of the 66 Ohio, which is just, really? he was just a phenomenal writer. And uh, that I, I, I have a, you know, is I'm an army of the Cumberland guy. I mean, through and through, that's where my family served. But I tell you what, another, another, uh, the army, the, the 11th and 12th Corps, the army of the Potomac get me every time. <laughs> and uh, I just, you know, I, 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 I'm, I, I enjoy studying the Eastern theater about through Gettysburg. And then after that, I'm, I'm just not so interested. Mm -hmm. And I wonder it's in part because the Ohioans by and large left the army of the Potomac after Gettysburg, they, they mm -hmm. by and large went out West. And uh, so, you know, a, a little bit of state pride there, I guess, but I'm yeah, say so one, one of the jokes, you know, I've kind of, I was kind of alluding to this earlier that about, uh, you know, my family's experience in the Civil War, I, I joke that the Army of the Cumberland was the family business. In, in a lot of ways, it was. Um, they had four uh, direct Civil War ancestors, like great-great-grandfathers and whatnot. Three of those four served in the Army of the Cumberland. And the fourth 
served in Murfreesboro and around Nashville. So he was, wasn't in the Army of the Cumberland, but he was in the same places that they were just later in the war. Uh-huh. And um, so, you know, going into things like Stones River, um, you know, the Western Theater in general, it, it's, it's easy for me to get excited and stay excited about the topic because in a sense, you're learning a bit about yourself, about your, you know, what your family experience uh, affects you in ways today that you, you may, may find hard to imagine. Like, you know, why did your family move to a certain area? Well, maybe he had uh, a comrade that, you know, had mentioned to him during the war, hey, you know, there's some really good farmland in Jay County, Indiana, you should check it out. And, yeah, it's just it, 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 the the connections that you can make when you get into this field can be uh, can be mind blowing at times. I'm a little partial to the Western Theater, and I think it's because of Grant, um, mm-hmm. he another Ohioan. Uh, hard not to be a fan of his. So, so I'm a little partial, and I, that's why I was particularly excited to talk about Stones River today. Um, I've been doing a lot of study on Chattanooga recently. Um, so, so for some reason I tend to be partial to that Western theater as well. I don't have relatives like you who served in the mm-hmm. army of the Cumberland, but I am excited. So, uh, well, that's a bit about you. So if you want to kind of, we can start diving into the battle a bit. And, um, sure. if you want to set it up for, for us and our listeners a bit, uh, tell us a little bit about the lead up here. Obviously we have Rosecrans and the army of the Cumberland versus the infamous Braxton Bragg. <laughs> the infamous Braxton Bragg. <laughs> so really the, the and, and I just, um, in the interest of full disclosure, I am currently working on a uh, campaign study of Stones River um, that I'm uh, be publishing through Savas Beatty here in the future. Uh, oh, I, I talked to him. We uh, I did an interview with him. So, okay, good. Yeah. So listeners should be familiar. Yep. So we've, uh, but yeah, I've been working on, actually, I've been doing the research for the book probably since about 2002, 2003. So we're talking 20 years. And you know, here I am finally getting around to writing the book. But it's it's uh, really proud of it when it comes. I um, just, the more, it, it's one of those things. I collected all this stuff over the years and to finally actually sit down and put it into a, and into a narrative, into a story. Uh, it, it's really cool. Um, but to put that, you know, to kind of put Stones River into perspective, it was fought uh, over about the period of a week, um, uh, late December of 1862. Uh, the Confederate Army pulled out of Murfreesboro the night of January 3rd, early morning of January 4th, 1863. Um, Rosecrans uh, was relatively new to command. This was actually his first battle as uh, commander of the Army of the Cumberland. Uh, interesting side note, it wasn't called the Army of the Cumberland quite yet. Uh, that wouldn't happen until January 9th, a uh, few days after the battle. Uh, so the, the army that went into action at Stones River, the Federal Army, was known as the 14th Army Corps, which is a, um, a pretty unsexy name when you get down <laughs> to it. Um, but Rosecrans had taken over command in late October of 1862 from Don Carlos Buell. Um, I mean, uh, some of your listeners may be familiar with uh, uh, General Buell. Uh, General Buell was the commander of what was then known as the Army of the Ohio. Um, Buell had uh, a number of issues. He was uh, had a lot of similarities with George McClellan uh, politically. I mean, he was he was he was a Democrat. He tended to be fairly. He was very conservative in 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 outlook. 
uh, very conservative in general. I would not argue he's a bad general. He's not um, a little slow uh, or a lot slow, depending on your perspective. The Lincoln administration thought he was uh, rather tone deaf and uh, terribly slow. And in the um, in the wake of what happened at the uh, Battle of Perryville, where the, the the Lincoln administration was just, and Lincoln in particular, was really upset with how in the aftermath of that battle, all that he got from Buell was excuses about why he couldn't follow Braxton Bragg's army into eastern Tennessee. And Lincoln was already in the midst of having uh, enormous difficulties with getting George McClellan to pursue Lee after Antietam. You know, the Army of the Potomac literally sat on the uh, eastern bank of the um, of the river there for, for weeks mm-hmm. um, after Antietam, which was, you know, supposedly a, a Union victory, uh, maybe a Pyrrhic victory, but, a, a, you know, victory nonetheless. And um, so there was a lot of frustration that, you know, the war that had been going quite well for the Union, especially in the Western theater up until the summer of 1862, you get into September and you've got the Confederate Army marching into Maryland. You've got the Confederate Army marching into Missouri out in the far west. And you have the Confederate Army on the loose and raising Kane in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And let's be honest here, the, the, the September and October, it's, it's the political season. It's the midterm elections. And the perce- you know, perception makes reality. The perception is that the Union Army is, is, is dropping the ball here. And the elections in October of 1862, uh, the congressional elections, uh, the Democrats make some pretty significant gains. And, and, you know, there's war weariness that creeps into that in the Midwest, which was largely where the Army of the Ohio was from. uh, There was a lot of local discontent with the fact that the Mississippi River was closed. You got to think the trade ties. Um, the Midwest was not tied to New England like we would expect. Mm-hmm. Um, their trade routes were primarily uh, down the Ohio River and down the Mississippi. So their, their trade connections are with like New Orleans. And while the Federal Army and the Federal Navy had control of the Mississippi River to about Memphis, and they had New Orleans, that critical center section between Memphis and New Orleans was in the hands of the Confederates. So you know, all this uh, agricultural trade from the Midwest didn't have anywhere to go, which meant that the prices dropped, which meant that people were suffering. So when, when they when they went to the polls, in, in part, what they were voting against was not just, you know, a lack of success in the battlefield. They were voting. They were voting with their pocketbooks. They're, they were suffering. And, right. you know, they held the administration responsible. That's really, really nothing <laughs> any different than we do these days, you know, in, in elections. Um, but that all that to say, um, the Confederates had invaded Kentucky in September of 1862. They actually had two armies active in Kentucky. There was Braxton Bragg's army and then uh, Smith's army, which was more over more in eastern um, eastern Kentucky, had fought the Battle of Richmond. This is Edmund Kirby Smith, you know, the famous Edmund Kirby Smith of later of Kirby Smith them out in the Trans-Mississippi. Um, there was supposed to be cooperation between these two officers. I think Smith um, Smith did all he could to not get himself under uh, under Bragg's uh, immediate control, even though he'd promised him all sorts of cooperation. 
So essentially what you had, you had two quasi-independent Confederate armies operating in Kentucky uh, in September 1862. And as we go into October, uh, in the meantime, uh, you know, the Army of Ohio had penetrated as far south as Huntsville, Alabama and had occupied uh, and, and you know, we're, we're making moves uh, to occupy Chattanooga, which is you know, ultimately the Stones River campaign is kind of the setup for uh, Rosecrans own uh, Chattanooga campaign, which came later in 1863. But the federal army had already been down there and, and it had gotten within, oh, 25 or 30 miles of Chattanooga when, um, when Buell's uh, logistics concerns pretty much halted his army in place. I mean, when the, the logistics concerns came about largely because of Confederate cavalry raids on his supply lines, the railroad lines. So all that to say is Bragg launches the, the, the Kentucky invasion with, with Kirby Smith in August of 1862. Uh, the Confederates have moved into the state and really they were induced into the state thinking that thousands of Kentuckians would join the Confederate army once there was a Confederate army there to join. And as, as the weeks passed, it, it, it was rather with some bitter tears that, that Bragg learned that that wasn't the case. And the Kentuckians that were willing to join were pretty much willing to join the cavalry, and that's about it. Um, I, I think in total, uh, by the end of the Kentucky campaign, the Confederates might have walked out with uh, 2,500 recruits. Uh, the kind of numbers they were talking about when they went in were in the tens of thousands. You know, the expectation was they were going to add another core two worth of Kentucky troops to his army, which had that had that panned out, uh, the Stones River probably would not have happened. I don't think the federal army would have been able to quite deal with that until they gained some sufficient reinforcements. Mm -hmm. um, but all that to say, the Kentuckians did not respond. By and large, did not respond to uh, to the uh, uh, lure of the Confederates to join up in their army. Uh, once that started dawning on Bragg, you got to think of his strategic position. I mean, his supply base is Chattanooga. He's, you know, uh, moving towards Louisville. He has a federal bastion at Nashville in his rear. He has no real, uh, no real clear supply lines. Now the, the closest major railhead would be Knoxville. But uh, if you've ever been down to Knoxville, that part of Tennessee is pretty rugged. And at that time, there were not railroads running north from Knoxville into Kentucky. There was railroads heading over into Virginia. So from a logistical standpoint, Bragg really can't maintain his army in Kentucky if the Kentuckians aren't going aren't to rise and come to his colors. And so in early October, he's already starting to look at, you know, okay, we th this, this whole campaign isn't going to pan out. How do we get out of here with, you know, uh, a minimum of damage? And what you see at Perryville was, was Bragg was slowly starting to move uh, east uh, to join up with Kirby Smith, because as Buell came out of Louisville, uh, Buell has uh, received thousands of reinforcements, newly raised troops, and um, is now pursuing Bragg out of Kentucky uh, with an awful lot of pressure from the Lincoln administration um, to get the, you know, get the Confederates out of Kentucky uh, as soon as possible. Uh, they, the, the two armies will more or less say blunder into each other at Perryville uh, on October 8, 1862. 
there's a tremendous battle, uh, which I, I just had the chance here a month or so ago to actually tour the battlefield for the first time. It's um, an amazing field um, uh, with, with a guy with uh, uh, worn out old knees. It's a little rough on the, uh, the hills are a little rough on you, but uh, the, the vistas are incredible. It's, it's about as uh, a version of battlefield as one can expect. I mean, very little development. The sight lines are like they used to be. I mean, it's an incredible place. Uh, but these two armies meet, and there's really only a small portion of Bragg's army that's there, I think around 16,000 troops. Uh, Buell arrives with around 60,000, but the vast majority of them don't see action. Um, McCook's Corps, uh, which is on the federal right, is the vast majority of the fighting on the federal side. Bragg basically throws in everything that he has and, and wins what I guess you could call a battlefield victory, but that promptly gives up the field that night because he knows he can't compete with, with the, the larger federal army that was there. Um, the way that battle was conducted really uh, set a lot of alarm bells ringing within the Union Army in that, in that theater, especially within Buell's command. There was a lot of officers that were just furious at how... Um, so many Federals were on the field that never went into action. Uh, they were kind of uh, Buell's orders basically told them to stay in place. Buell didn't even really understand this battle was occurring until it was almost over. Uh, so there was just a, a, a lot of things about that battle that just set poorly uh, with the Army and really set poorly with the politicians as well. Um, Perryville is considered a Union victory. Uh, largely because we possess, you know, we, the union possessed the field afterwards. We're both um, Ohioans, so. <laughs> yeah, we're both Ohioans. That's, yeah, it's kind of hard to not say us. <laughs> um, but all that to say, you know, Bragg starts moving out of Kentucky shortly thereafter. Bragg, uh, uh, Buell does pursue Bragg, um, not with any, there's a couple of minor engagements. There's one at Dog Walk, I think, the day after Perryville. There's a few other uh, scraps and skirmishes on the way, but by and large, Bragg is allowed to retreat out of Kentucky uh, with a uh, what is reported to be a 40-mile-long wagon train of spoils. You know, he's taken out, um, you know, thousands and thousands of, of, of pounds of cloth and corn and fodder and all sorts of things like that and bacon. I mean, just, you know, really went into Kentucky and just kind of, uh, you know, buying up with worthless Confederate script, pretty much any kind of supplies he thought he could use. Um, Lincoln administration is not pleased um, with the pursuit, but they're really not pleased with some of the responses they get out of Buell when they start, uh, uh, Halleck in particular starts pressuring him you need to follow Bragg into Eastern, Ten Eastern Tennessee because we have all these Eastern Tennessee unionists that want, you know, they want to be freed from the yoke of Confederate tyranny. And, you know, here's your chance to go in there and do it. And Buell just has nothing but excuses about why he can't. And it all comes down to two things, really. Uh, the primary one being logistics. Um, there's, you know, these rough mountain roads that uh, would be his only means of supply. Um very subject to being cut by, you know, bushwhackers and Confederate cavalrymen. There's no, there's no secure river transport like there is with the Cumberland River going to Nashville. There's no good rail line. 
So he's thinking, how in the world am I going to maintain a 80,000 man army in Eastern Tennessee without any, without any logistical underpinnings? And the part that I think really sunk Buell was he makes a comment that the reason that he, one of the reasons that he's unwilling to go into Eastern Tennessee is that he can't get the army to, the army is basically not sufficiently disciplined to operate the way the Confederates do. And Lincoln takes this as he doesn't believe in his troops. And that's how the troops viewed it uh, once they became, you know, aware of these communications. Now, the troops had very little use for Don Carlos Buell anyway. Um, over the course of the summer, you know, as these Confederate cavalry raids had cut the uh, Union supply lines in Tennessee and Kentucky, uh, these troops were put on half or quarter rations. And Don Carlos Buell was a, a regular officer in all respects of that word. Uh, he was uh, a, a strict disciplinarian. Uh, he had put very uh, strict guidelines out there uh, forbidding the men from foraging. Uh, you know, uh, and the men felt that their time was being wasted. They were guarding, uh, you know, rebel gardens and rebel hen, hen roosts uh, while these same folks, you know, bushwhacked them and stabbed them in the back. So they started taking matters into their own hands and would start, you know, uh, liberally foraging on the country. And uh, Buell's uh, um, officers, you know, under Buell's orders, uh, started arresting these guys and putting them on, you know, court-martialing them, which just, the, and the men were just infuriated. I mean, they're already not, they're already not getting their rations. And then when they try to do something about it, you know, they, the army's throwing them in the pokey. Um, and they were not shy about complaining about this, this, um, this situation of their, their fr friends and family back home and to the politicians back home, in, in, including uh, Governor Oliver Morton of Indiana, very powerful um, a Republican governor. Um, Morton is, Morton and, and Buell already were, um, well, they weren't sending Christmas cards to each other. We'll leave it th at that. Um, there was a lot of disagreements between the two. And as the kind of the, the, the results of the Kentucky campaign become clear, Morton is collaborating with Governor Yates in Illinois and Governor David Todd of Ohio uh, to all three of these governors are going to put pressure on Lincoln to remove Buell. And Lincoln was certainly aware this was going on politically. It was, um, you know, these are three of his staunchest allies. And if they're all and, and, the most of the Army of Ohio is from those three states. So what these what these governors are hearing from their troops is that we need to remove Buell out of command. And that does happen in late October. But really, there's a lot of different things that go into Buell's removal. Uh, but those were the, the two key things, you know, his, his very poor relations with his with his volunteers that only got worse after Perryville. And then, you know, the, the worsening relations with Halleck, the, you know, uh, Stanton and, and with Lincoln um, uh, in Washington. And those lead to his removal. Uh, interestingly, you know, the press of the time viewed uh, Buell's removal uh, through purely a, a, a mostly a political uh, lens. The, oh, this, you know, this is the Lincoln administration, you know, striking out against Democratic leaning generals and um, interestingly enough, uh, you know, Buell is removed from command 
on October 30th, 1862. And about a week later, Mr. McClellan finds himself out of a job too. So uh, in a way, the uh, Buell removal was the, the warm-up session for McClellan. Now, McClellan's removal had a lot more political blowback than Buell. Um, McClellan, unlike Buell, was a beloved figure in the Army of the Potomac. So you had the, the Army didn't want their commander removed, whereas in the Army, uh, you know, in Army of the Ohio, um, the soldiers by and large greeted Buell's removal with a, you know, a collective hurrah. They were pretty glad the guy was gone. So that sets us up to Rosecrans taking command. I'll let you, let you set up the next part and we'll take it from there. You want, well, I was going to ask you a bit if you want to, sure. that sets up our union. So we have Buell out of command, Rosecrans is taking over. Um, we also have Braxton Bragg on the Confederate side, and Braxton Bragg's a a very controversial figure. So I wanted to ask you a bit before we get into this. What what is your opinion on Bragg? A far better general than he's given credit for. Um, however, um, I I say that with some hesitation. Um, there has been a lot of a lot of nasty things written about Braxton Bragg since the Civil War. Um, I think, you know, when you really look into Braxton Bragg's record, he probably had no business being in command of an army, um, just from the standpoint of his health. Uh, he, was, he was in poor health the entire time he had commanded the Army of Tennessee, much like his predecessor, um, uh, Beauregard who left the army in June of 1862, really due to health concerns and mm -hmm. went on an author, unauthorized leave, which so incensed Jefferson Davis that he put Bragg in command. Bragg uh, had no desire to be in command of what was then known as the Army of the Mississippi. Uh, Bragg too, like Buell, it was a bit of a martinet, um, very strict disciplinarian, a very regular officer. Uh, didn't really have a lot of uh, a, a lot of love for his his volunteer troops, largely because he felt they were um, unwilling to submit to the kind of discipline he felt uh, they needed to submit to to be successful. Uh, there's there's a lot of literature where he or a lot of letters and things he writes in June of '62 where he's really struggling with not really wanting to take command here, but, you know, he's been assigned. He doesn't have, it's not like the, it's not like a job offer where they, you know, Hey, <laughs> would you like to come be our director of marketing? Well, not really. I'm pretty happy to, well, you're going to be the director of marketing regardless <laughs> whether you want it or not. And uh, that that's, so Buell was kind of handed a, uh, a, a pretty, a pretty tough challenge um, when he took command in June of 1862. Now the, the Confederates at, at Shiloh had certainly proven they could fight uh, as they had proven at Fort Donelson, you know, several weeks before. Uh, so there was no shortage of courage uh, or, or valor in these men whatsoever. Uh, but what Bragg uh, noticed, especially with Polk's Corps, uh, there was, th this was kind of the wild west that this wasn't, you know, a, a very uh, disciplined army that he was, uh, taking into the field here. And really his first month or two of command is largely spent getting control of the army, which including shooting men when they don't follow orders. I think the first one was in about the middle of June and the, the soldier basically refused to submit to any military discipline. Uh, so Bragg uh, ordered him shot in front of his peers. 
Uh, he unless, wasn't the unless first. you're Nathan Bedford Forrest, then you can tell Brad. <laughs> <laughs> you know, success success makes up for all sorts of things. Um, so you know the 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 popular image that we that most of us are are introduced to with Braxton Bragg. I, another guy who's actually his book sitting on my desk is Sam Watkins, who I actually I, I love his I love his book. You, you really get the sense he doesn't like Bragg. <laughs> he really, really doesn't like Bragg. Well, for a lot of people, that's kind of the prism in which they view him as well. You know, Sam Watkins thought he was a, a doofus. Um, and he was in a lot of ways. And I, I don't want to argue that he was, you know, the Confederacy's best general. He certainly was not. Um, I think misunderstood and put in a very tough position. Um oftentimes didn't have a lot of options. Now, from a personal standpoint, I don't think I could have worked for the man. I, I think he, he was uh, uh, rather remorseless, um, hard to read. Uh, I don't think he treated his subordinates very well. He had a very snappish temper. Uh, he snapped about foolish things, in part because he was in, uh, he was in a fair amount of pain most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, he had problems with uh, hemorrhoids, among other things. I mean, he just had a lot of health issues going on that uh, he probably would have been better off in a hospital bed for a couple of those years during the war rather than you know leading an army. Um, but all that to say, he was also uh, n- no shortage of bravery. He was very intelligent, a very intelligent officer with very good strategic sense. Um, uh, certainly had what I, I guess I'd call the vision thing. Um, he could understand what he wanted his army to do from, you know, from a strategic standpoint. Uh, tactically, he suffered a, a bit. Uh, command relationships, uh, he struggled a lot. Uh, he kind of had his favorites. Uh, Jones Withers, who was one of his divisional commanders, was a favorite. Uh, largely the troops that he had, he had kind of raised and brought up uh, down when he had command in the Gulf. Uh, he tended to always favor them a bit. Um, the, the troops that were under Leonidas Polk, a lot of Tennesseans, I uh, didn't have a lot of use for them. You know, Benjamin Cheatham was another one that was on, uh, on his list of unworthies. Um, so, yeah, he wasn't, uh, he, he, I don't think he's as bad as he's made out to be. Uh, he's certainly not very successful. And maybe that's, you know, when, 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 when folks are looking back at the lost cause, you know, they're, they're reluctant to blame their generals with the exception of Braxton Bragg. Um, you know, certainly no one's going to blame Lee for, you know, Antietam, but that was certainly a defeat. Gettysburg was a defeat. Um, probably one of those charges that never should have been made. Mm-hmm. Um, Jefferson Davis certainly was held to account, but by and large, the generals uh, get a pass, but Braxton Bragg does not. And I think it comes back to uh, Bragg, like Buell, did not have a, a, by and large, did not have a good relationship with, with his troops. Uh, there were pockets where he was uh, reasonably well accepted, and then there was parts of the army where, you know, they just kind of hissed when they heard his name. So, um not really a unifying figure. Now, Beauregard, who had preceded him, um, was, you know, he was one of the he was the original hero of the Confederacy, you know, with his involvement at Fort Sumter, uh, which which kind of gave him a bit of a pass uh, with some of the things that happened after Shiloh. Uh, Bragg didn't get a pass. He was uh, really when he took command, the war was not going well for the Confederates. You know, you go into June of 1862, the Union armies in northern Mississippi. In northern Alabama, they're pressing on Georgia. 
Uh, McClellan's army is parked a few miles from Richmond. Uh, the Shenandoah Valley campaign is over, but the Union Army, you know, Jackson's given credit for waging this tremendous campaign, which he did. But at the end of the day, the federal army still had control of the Shenandoah Valley. It didn't change anything. Mm-hmm. And um, at this point, the things are actually looking pretty good for the Union. So Bragg comes into command and really a, a, a low point uh, for the Confederacy. Um and comes up with, you know, this idea in, in conjunction with Kirby Smith about invading Kentucky. And it really kind of sets the war in the West on its ear, uh, really kind of turns the tables. The fact that that campaign wasn't successful, Bragg certainly made his share of blunders along the way. Um, but in part, it was a, a bit of a, I think, a, a realistic view that I can't maintain a Confederate army in Kentucky if the, if the Kentucky populace isn't willing to support it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he retreats into Tennessee, uh, in, in October of 1862. Um, so how's that get the armies into Murfreesboro? So you look at a map and, you know, Knoxville's over in Eastern Tennessee and Murfreesboro's in the center. Well, the Confederates had maintained a, uh, they had followed as Buell pulls out of Alabama and out of Southern Tennessee. Uh, there were forces, small forces that had moved in, you know, kind of in their wake and by October of 1862, uh, the kind of the demarcation line between federal and Confederate control was right, right in between Nashville and Murfreesboro. So when, when Bragg comes back from Kentucky, he moves his army basically as close to the federal supply base as he can, which is at Murfreesboro. Now, Murfreesboro is a great, uh, great place to maintain an army. You have a, a secure rail line that leads from uh, Murfreesboro down into, I say, Decatur, Alabama, and another rail line that goes over to Chattanooga. So you have a secure rail line. Uh, you look at a map at Stones River, it, it, it like Gettysburg, is like a, a center with spokes of a wheel heading out in every direction. So, you know, any direction you need to go from Murfreesboro, there's a road to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, the citizens of, of Middle Tennessee were, were by and large, uh, uh, very pro-Confederate. Uh, pro-rebel. Uh, so it was a, um, uh, a friendly locale uh, to set up. Uh, it was a very rich uh, foraging area as well. Um, when the federal army moved out in September, they moved out right as harvest season was starting to kick into gear. Now these uh, Tennessee farmers had been you know, busy planting corn and all sorts of crops all summer uh, under federal protection uh, by Buell's uh, command. So these farms, this isn't like it is a year later where these farms are by and large pillaged by both armies. Uh, they, they, they had been able to operate uh, more or less undisturbed, which meant that when the Confederate Army moves in in October and November of 1862, uh, there's a whole year's harvest sitting there available for them to purchase, which you know citizens in that part of Tennessee will take Confederate script and be happy for it. So... Bragg sets up in Murfreesboro for, you know, uh, logistical reasons is, is very important. Uh, he can, su- he can supply, he can supply his army from Chattanooga. He can supply uh, his army with foodstuffs and forage locally. And he's close to the enemy. And he's, can, you know, he's also, you know, uh, possessing what is considered Confederate territories. He's repossessing a portion of Tennessee. So if you look at the Kentucky campaign, it wasn't a barren victory from a Confederate perspective. They, they moved their front lines a good hundred miles into Tennessee. 
which prior to that campaign, they were not. They were all the way down south of Huntsville. So mm-hmm. he looked at, you know, Bragg looked at this as, you know, the Kentucky campaign didn't quite uh, render the result that we wanted, but look at what we did get. Uh, we got a lot of Confederate territory back under our control. Um, he felt that Perryville was a Confederate victory, and on the field, it certainly was. Um, of, of course, there's you know the the one bugaboo that the Army of Tennessee never was really able to expunge was there was always a lot of infighting within, especially within the generalship of that army. Um, now, a lot Bragg didn't help that this is where where, where Bragg's uh, uh, personal style of command really didn't. Uh, didn't do the Confederacy many favors. I mean, he tended to be pretty disputatious. Um, I mean, he openly had no respect for Leonidas Polk, who was one of the most, you know, may not have been a very effective general, but Leonidas Polk was extraordinarily popular within the Army of the Ten- Army of Tennessee. He eventually uh, gets him sent away, correct, uh, before Chattanooga? Yeah. Yes, he does. Yeah. And... and and, and Polk keeps coming. He's like a bad penny. He just, he just keeps coming back, you know. He is a, was an Episcopal bishop, so. He was. He was. And uh, as I said, very, very Polk was a very popular figure um, within with the other generals in the army. Um, I, I'm not quite sure where I land on Bishop Polk. Um, it, it, honestly, as I'm writing this, this book about Stones River, uh, he, he's certainly present there. He's a corps commander, but he, he's kind of a, a nebulous, <laughs> doesn't seem to really add or subtract anything from the equation. He's just kind of there, you know, mm-hmm. um, kind of like uh, Thomas L. Crittenden on the federal side, but we'll get into that later. Um, but then all that to say, you know, uh, after the Kentucky campaign, Jefferson Davis wants some answers, you know, what, what happened here. Uh, Bragg goes to Kentucky or goes to Richmond to kind of explain himself. And, you know, there's, there's this fiction out there that Jefferson Davis and Braxton Bragg were close friends. Um, there was a respect between them and I, uh, calling them friends, I think would be really stretching it. Um, I mean, the fact was that, uh, Bragg resigned his commission in the army in the 1850s because he was, uh, very upset that the reforms he was he was suggesting uh, Jefferson Davis was shooting down. Um, so there there wasn't uh, th- there's not this long you know chummy relationship going back to you know the old army days. I mean, um, I, I think uh, as as the war progressed, Davis um, tended to support Bragg when most others would not. And people thought, oh, he's doing that for personal friendship reasons. I think really for Davis, he looked at it and he was really struggling with, if not Bragg, then who? Mm -hmm. Uh, Polk? Are you kidding me? (laughs) Now, Polk was Jefferson Davis's friend. They were, they did have a close relationship, but man, it might be why Davis wasn't so sure putting the army under Polk's command was such a good idea. He knew this guy pretty well, knew what his limitations were. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Polk, uh, uh, yeah, Polk, Polk wasn't a good answer. So you look at, you know, if not Bragg, then who? Well, it's not Polk. Uh, William J. Hardy would be the, the logical, uh, six, um, uh, person to look to. I mean, he certainly has the right West Point pedigree, uh, very well regarded in the army. Um, Hardy at this point is already starting to foment, 
um, the anti-brag feeling within the army he actually does it through schools of instruction. He brings these, brings these officers in and kind of goes through lessons and tactics and then uses Braxton Bragg as kind of the, uh, uh, the straw man of this is what you don't do. Don't do what the commanding general does. So he does it through an instructional way, but yeah, just kind of, and I'm sure Davis was aware of this to some degree. So he's like, okay, it's not really, not really who we want in command of the army. Um, you look at other generals with, you know, you got to have the right level of seniority. I mean, it's a pretty short list. You got Samuel Cooper, who's, you know, a, a fossil in Richmond. He's not going anywhere. You got Robert E. Lee, who's certainly not leaving the army in Northern Virginia. Uh, you got Joseph Johnston, who Davis had already had enormous problems with. Um, and then Beauregard, who had already basically left command of the army. I mean, he just up and left. So your options aren't, they're not good. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, especially at this point in the war. Now, maybe as, as the war progressed, um, did he need to stick with Bragg as long as he did? Uh, there there might have been some other better options later on, maybe in 1863. But at this point in the war, uh, it, it, the bench is pretty is pretty light for, you know, uh, field commanders in the Western Army. So that's in, in part, I think Davis ends up keeping Bragg because he didn't have many other good options. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's a good background on Bragg and Rosecrans, Buell. So we have Rosecrans now in command of this Union force here, and Mm -hmm. we have Bragg and his army of Tennessee, and they're going to clash here in Murfreesboro. Uh, So let's talk a bit about the battle here. Um, Both commanders are going to come up with a plan to try to outflank the other correct yeah yeah so let's we'll back it up just a touch rosecrans when he takes command of the army is about as opposite of don carlos buell as you can imagine um you know buell was kind of a, a dour taciturn individual um rosecrans i don't know if i'd say he's the life of the party but he's very energetic um a talker um uh, and he loved his volunteers. He loved, he, he, there's n- numerous stories I've come across where Rosecrans would essentially just wander the camps un- unattended and just visit the men in their tents and just talk with them. And he, you know, he did this for purpose, but he genuinely enjoyed it. And then you know, this gave the, 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 the enlisted men a chance to actually see their general and kind of, you know, get a feel of them a little bit. And by and large, the, the, Army of the Army of the Cumberland falls in love with Rosecrans. Even after, Ch- even after Chickamauga, uh, when that was clearly a, a, a federal uh, defeat and you know, largely put on Rosecrans' shoulders, uh, the, the enlisted men, that, that love and respect that they gained for him there at, at the outset never goes away. Mm-hmm. And so... The Army of the Cumberland, we'll use that term, even though that's not technically who they are, as they march onto the field at Stones River, uh, you've had almost a complete change in morale from the Buell days. Um, The Army is kind of feeling its power a bit. Um, Rosecrans, like McClellan, uh, who was a, a, a fantastic organizer and had this knack of saying the right things at the right times to his volunteers to get them to, you know, kind of buy into his vision. Um, 
by and large, you know, the, 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 the federal army is almost night and day from what it was at Perryville just a couple months prior, especially from a morale standpoint, uh, which would certainly impact how they're going to fight at Stones River. So really, as you kind of have these two armies, um, you know, uh, clashing at Stones River, there are two armies that are in flux as you know all, all all manners of human endeavor are constantly in flux there's few things that are ever you know think about who you worked with a year ago and who's still in the department today you know these things change they change all the time um and and armies are no different and in this case yeah i'd say that the federal army in, in tennessee uh was turning the corner um they'd kind of gotten into a dark place with buell and with Rosecrans in command, things were starting to, 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 to go in a different direction. Uh, he had the War Department's ear. He was, uh, the main concern he had was that he had a, a shortage of cavalry and was um, uh, pressing the War Department to give him more. Uh, he was looking for better arms and equipment. Uh, the, the Federal Army uh, didn't have, you know, uh, the, the popular perception as well. The Confederates all had Enfields and the Union Army all had Springfields. And the, the, the Union Army in December 1862 in Nashville probably had a dozen different weapons of five or six different calibers. And some regiments had five different weapons of three different calibers in the same regiment. So put yourself in the position of an ordnance sergeant. You need to take this regiment out into battle and you need to make sure you have a supply of three different types of ammunition, 54, 57, and 69 caliber. Mm -hmm. And what happens when you run out of 54 caliber ammunition? You can't put in 57 or 69. <laughs> so, I mean, it just from a, from a standpoint of supplying the armies, it, it, efforts are being made to start turning that around. But at this point, that hadn't happened. So it was very, you know, the army was very unevenly uh, armed um, and equipped for the most part. But as I said, morale was 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 improving. Um, the troops had a palpable sense that the Rosecrans had their back. They like—I mean, it, it just the, 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 uh, the simple statement. They genuinely liked the man, mm -hmm. which they did not with Buell. You contrast that with the Army of Tennessee. Uh, we've got command dysfunction. Uh, clearly, we have command dysfunction, especially at the highest levels between you know Hardy, Polk, and, and, and Bragg. That filters down into the you know some of the lower echelon generals as well. Um, in the ranks, it's a little more of a mixed bag. But you know, it, uh, Bragg is like a he's a stern authority figure, but he's not beloved, not like Rosecrans. And so, in December of 1862. Um, you know, the Lincoln administration, having recovered a bit from the, uh, the, the October election um, disaster, um, is concerned about how the Union war efforts being perceived overseas, particularly in England by the English Parliament. And the thought is that, you know, and obviously there's, there's uh, political discontent at home. Um, that, the, you know, the federal armies after, you know, after Antietam, you go almost three months before there's the next major battle at Fredericksburg. Uh, after Perryville, we go almost three months until Stones River. Uh, in the, you know, further west, when you look at Grant's army, uh, they had the Battle of Shiloh, we had the Siege of Corinth, and then we had six months where there wasn't a whole lot going on. Mm -hmm. So there's this sense that the, the Union war effort is a bit stymied 
uh, really from from coast to coast. And in December, there's you know there was a, a concerted drive uh, on all three of these fronts to uh, you know, really bring the war to the Confederacy. Um, so you have the battle, of, you know, the the drive to get across the Rappahannock River, which was just a complete disaster at Fredericksburg. Uh, tremendous uh, federal defeat. Uh, further west, uh, Grant makes his his first real push to uh, to take Vicksburg. Uh, kind of a two-pronged campaign. He had a land component that he was in command of, and then uh, William Tecumseh Sherman took command of a, a seaborne component uh, that uh, met its fate at a place known as Chickasaw Bayou, just, just about the same time as Stones River. Uh, another uh, bloody defeat for the Federals. Uh, it's been likened to a, a, a Fredericksburg of the West. Now, the casualty figures weren't quite, weren't anything like they were in the East, but it was very, very lopsided. So, East and West, the, the federal army kind of goes on this, this broad offensive and it fails. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like I said, Lincoln's very concerned with, you know, we've got the Emancipation Proclamation it's supposed to take effect on January 1st. Is this going to look like the last shriek on the, on the retreat that he'd been warned about before? And really the, the hopes then center on Rosecrans moving out of Nashville and uh, taking the fight to Braxton Bragg at what was then, you know, it was then in Murfreesboro. Uh, Rosecrans, there's a couple of things about Stones River I think are worth noting. Um, Rosecrans had an army of roughly 80,000 men in and around Nashville. They were spread out over a considerable distance. Uh, He only takes about 45,000 to Murfreesboro itself. Uh, the rest are rem- uh, remaining there to guard the railroad lines, uh, which was you know, absolutely vital to being able to keep the army supplied. Uh, the water level on the Cumberland River wasn't quite high enough to, to support uh, uh, steamboat traffic, which would have been the, uh, another major avenue of supply. So a lot of, you know, there's only so many troops he can take with him on the offensive. But what triggers Rosecrans to move when he does um, was really a bit of uh, Confederate braggadocio. The Confederate cavalry in the West had been the terror of the Union Army through most of 1862. And there was two primary commanders that, that got federal attention. There was John, don't call me Hunt Morgan, uh, thanks to Earl Smith. And then there was uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest, who was you know, kind of considered the junior partner of that concern at the time. Um, Morgan certainly being the more famous of the two and really the more feared. Now, Morgan had already caused a lot of problems for Buell during his first Kentucky raid back in July of 62. Uh, Bedford Forrest caused his own mayhem at Murfreesboro in July of 62. And when Bragg has, you know, he's got these, uh, he's trying to reorganize his army at, at Murfreesboro in November uh, he decides that he is going to appoint Joe Wheeler as his cavalry chief, but he's going to give Morgan and Forrest basically independent ca- uh, commands so that they can go out and do raiding, which is really their specialty. I mean, they're, they're the experts at making these, these lightning swift raids in the federal rear that just cause a lot of uh, chaos and confusion. Um, not really set piece battles. You know, you don't have you know major cavalry charges here. It's usually... Uh, Confederate sneaking in under cover of the night or early morning and you know, taking a post by surprise. Uh, very, very effective at it. Um, in, de- in mid-December, um, 
Bragg dispatches both Forrest and Morgan at essentially the same time to go on cavalry raids. He was doing this in part to uh, break up, you know, he was trying to slow down Rosecrans' uh, buildup of supplies in Nashville. That's why he sent Morgan back up to Kentucky. Uh, Forrest was actually sent into western Tennessee to break up Grant's offensive, which he very effectively does, uh, in conjunction with Earl Van Dorn, who raids in Mississippi and knocks out uh, uh, Grant's uh, supply depot at Holly Springs. So these Confederate cavalry raids all kind of go out around the same time uh, with the intention of, uh, of styming these Union offensives. Um, the the uh, uh, Forest Cavalry Raid is, is considered a masterpiece achievement, um, and it was very effective, did a lot of damage to the railroads in western Tennessee. Didn't really affect uh, Rosecrans at all because he wasn't being supplied by any of them. Uh, certainly affected Grant. Uh, Morgan's raid isn't quite as successful, and by the time he really starts making an impact, the Battle of Stones River is already going on. So the, the net impact here is that you had probably about 5,000 cavalrymen that otherwise would have been at Stones River that are out of theater. They're, they're now away. There's another, there's another Confederate move that occurs in December of 1862 that's very significant. Uh, not that Rosecrans knew about it at the time, but he was probably pretty grateful for it later. Uh, Jefferson Davis in December of 62 uh, goes out west uh, to visit his newly appointed Western Theater commander, uh, Joseph E. Johnston, uh, and spends some time with Braxton Bragg and Murfreesboro. And these looming Confederate offensives have Davis very worried about Vicksburg. And the concern is that if the Federals are successful there, they're going to split the Confederacy in two, and then where are we going to be at? And he prevails, he actually orders Bragg, but he prevails upon Bragg to dispatch an entire division of troops under Carter Stevenson to go to Mississippi. Now, this is eight or 9,000 uh, veteran inf infantrymen uh, who otherwise would have been a part of, of Bragg's army at Murfreesboro that leave in the middle to the later part of December. So right before the, you know, we're, we're before Rosecrans moves out of Nashville, all of a sudden Bragg has dispatched 5,000 cavalry to go out and cause mayhem, and he's lost eight or 9,000 infantrymen. Now, some could argue that, well, if you look at the combat history of Stevenson's division, what did Bragg really lose? I mean, they typically don't do that well on the field, but I, I, I think it was pretty significant that they weren't there. They might have made the difference between victory and defeat uh, for the Confederates had they stayed in Murfreesboro. But the fact was Davis was thinking, you know, as a president should, thinking of national issues and um, keeping the two halves of the Confederacy linked together with the Mississippi River, certainly a, a pretty important objective, um, maybe more so than holding Middle Tennessee. And uh, so those troops um, all leave. Now, the Confederate, the Braggadocio I was talking about earlier, these cavalry raids, the Confederates were not exactly shy about telling everybody what they were going to do and where they were going to do it, um, especially Morgan. Uh, Morgan, uh, you know, had an ego probably the size of Tennessee at that point, <laughs> not, not unjustly earned. Uh, I mean, he just won a pretty uh, startling victory at Hartsville on December 7th. You know, uh, again, they basically captured a federal brigade um, at Hartsville. Uh, he had just gotten married. 
um, and you know, probably the social event of the uh, Christmas season in Murfreesboro, Bishop Polk himself uh, presiding over his nuptials. Um, had recently been promoted to Brigadier General. I mean, Morgan is riding about as high as Morgan's going to ride in the war at this point. Um, but the fact was, he's not at Stones River. He, he his, in, in his command, I think, is sorely missed. Uh, Bedford Forest camp, uh, uh, Command is also sorely missed, as is Carter Stevenson. So by the time the, you dispatch all these different troops, you get to the end of December 1862, and what Bragg has left in Murfreesboro is around 37,000 men. Uh, Rosecrans is going to come at him with about 45,000. So there is a bit of a numerical advantage um, on Rosecrans' side. Uh, Rosecrans, the, the key triggering event for him deciding to march out of Nashville when he did was learning that Mo uh, Morgan was on his raid. As soon as he knew Morgan was gone, he was ready to go. Um, you know, one of the stories is that he was... Uh, so eager to go that he dispatched uh, orders for the army to leave on Christmas Day, um, which, you know, being uh, uh, Rosecrans, you know, among his many other uh, characteristics, was a very devout Catholic. Uh, he was, he had totally forgotten that it was going to be Christmas, and it was until uh, his chaplain reminded him that, you know, General, tomorrow's Christmas. You sure you want to march the army out on Christmas Day? And he's like, oh my gosh, I totally forgot. So let's bump it out another day. So they did. And they bump it out to December 26, 1862. And the uh, Federal Army marches out of Nashville on uh, two separate uh, roads. Uh, one was the direct uh, Nashville, the Murfreesboro Pike, which is still there today. I think it's US 41. Um, you can follow the same path as uh, Crittenden's Corps did uh, all the way into Murfreesboro. The other two corps of the Army, one under the Center Corps under George H. Thomas, you know, um, a rock of Chickamauga, uh, most of us, Army of the Cumberlanders, uh, one of our favorite generals. He'll eventually um, relieve Rosecrans. He would eventually relieve Rosecrans. Um, uh, he marches towards Nolansville along with um, Alexander McDowell McCook, whose card I happen to have here with me. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, Schwing and Rudd, uh, photographers of the Army of the Cumberland. So I was able to pick this up here um, over the summer. So um, um, I have a soft spot for McCook, but McCook's going to take a shellacking in the book. That's <laughs> <laughs> different discussion. So uh, that said, McCook uh, actually has the one of the opening engagements of the uh, Stones River campaign uh, at Nolansville and then at a place called Knob Gap. Uh, which is a little south of Nolansville, is, is a union, a successful uh, union operation. Uh, but by and large, the cavalry that, that Bragg has left uh, is under John Wharton and Joseph Wheeler. And both of these officers, in my opinion, do an absolutely superb job of slowing Rosecrans' advance uh, with the limited forces that they have. I mean, the fact is, you're not going to halt. 40,000 infantrymen with 5,000 cavalrymen. That's just not going to happen. Right. Uh, but you can certainly slow it up and make make their way difficult. And both of these officers, I think, did uh, yeoman's work uh, in doing it. Wharton, maybe a little more so than Wheeler, but and neither one had anything to be ashamed of about how their commands um, operated. Uh, the march to Murfreesboro takes four days. They start on Friday the 26th. They don't actually... 
the whole army doesn't actually arrive at Murfreesboro till Tuesday the 30th. Uh, all three corps arrive. Um, the left wing, which is under uh, Thomas L. Crittenden, of course, is on the left side of the line. Uh, the two divisions of, of George H. Thomas's corps, which was Negley and Russo, take position in the center uh, near the Nashville Pike, uh, intersection of the Nashville and Wilkinson Pikes. And then the right wing under Alexander Dal McCook is the last to arrive on the field. They arrive on December 30th, uh, and the three divisions deploy south of the Wilkinson Pike. The Sheridan's division, uh, followed by uh, Jefferson Davis's division, probably do a whole podcast on Jefferson Davis, uh, the Union Jefferson Davis. Yeah, I was going to say, and, not uh, to be confused with the president. <laughs> exactly. Not, this is Jefferson Columbus Davis, not Jefferson Davis, the president. Uh, the last division that moves into place is Richard W. Johnston's, which constitutes the, uh, the federal right. Uh, it's an important detail that we'll talk about in a bit. Now, the whole time that Rosecrans is moving into Stones, uh, into Murfreesboro, uh, Bragg's cavalry is, is combating with them. But by and large, Bragg is keeping his men undercover and letting the enemy come to him. He selected defensive ground, not the best defensive ground, but defensive ground that met his purposes. Um, Probably the, you know, he spread across both sides of Stones River. Uh, he has Breckenridge's division on the east side of the river and then has the balance of his army on the west side of the river kind of facing Rosecrans' advance. There was, Bragg had a number of concerns about where, where you know, which direction was Rosecrans going to go? Was he going to go for one of the flanks? Uh, there was a lot of concern that Rosecrans had a larger force than he was showing and that there was going to be a Union division or two that were going to show up on the east side of Stones River after they had crossed at Jefferson. Um, so there, there, and that will affect a bit of how some of the fighting on December 31st goes because there's this uncertainty. Is the federal force that's in front of us really the whole, you know, the, the, the whole salami? Or is there another piece out there that we haven't seen yet? Uh, that we're maybe being shielded by, you know, uh, these three corps that have come our way. Bragg knows that Rosecrans' army is far larger uh, than what he sees in front of him at Murfreesboro. So there's, there's always kind of this underlying, you know, where's the other shoe going to drop? Mm -hmm. um, but all that to say, so we get into December 30th, 1862, we have the three corps of the federal army are present on the field. Uh, Bragg, almost Bragg's entire army is on the field. Now, Bragg did send Joseph Wheeler out on the 30th in a ride around the federal army, a very successful ride. Um, Wheeler fights an engagement at Jefferson. He fights again along the Nashville Pike. He rides over to Nolensville and, and just causes, you know, burns a lot of wagons, causes a lot of mayhem in the rear. Doesn't really impact matters at the front quite yet. Uh, but he's making this, this circuitous uh, ride around Rosecrans' army uh, the day before the battle. Um, it also kind of takes him out of position for the opening of the battle, but we, 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 we'll, we'll deal with that later. So Bragg's looking at this as he has a couple of options. Um, he can continue to sit still in his defensive positions and let the Federals come to him. I mean, it's something if Longstreet was there, that's probably what Longstreet would have done. Uh, Longstreet would have hunkered down into really good defensive ground, uh, let the Federals pummel themselves on it, and then he would have had some major attack column that would have split them in half. I mean, it was just kind of 
uh, Longstreet's mentality. Mm -hmm. uh, Bragg was a very, he was also very interested in direct action. Um, and what he decided upon was he felt that since there was only one core south of the Wilkinson Pike, and they were kind of stretched out, the uh, McCook's Corps was stretched out over about a mile and a half of ground. The thought was if he massed several of his divisions on what would have been Bragg's left, Rosecrans's right, uh, that he could perform a, a dawn assault and basically drive McCook off the field, which then would basically even the odds was really the thought was, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get rid of, you know, we'll, we'll defeat McCook's core. And by so doing that will put us in a better position to drive what's left of the federal army away from Murfreesboro. Interestingly enough, both generals came up with the same battle plan, just in reverse. Uh, General uh, Rosecrans was, of course, looking at Rosecrans knew what he had. He had these three corps. And he his thought was that he was going to uh, perform a, a river crossing. Uh, there was a number of good fords that they had possession of at Stones River. Uh, drive over to the eastern side of Stones River and then attack uh, Confederate positions uh, east of what is known now as Wayne's Hill. Uh, Breckenridge's division was in that area. Uh, he was going to devote most of uh, General Crittenden's corps to that task. That would have been two, two, of the, two of the three divisions. And then as those two divisions were engaged, that would all open the door for the third division um, of Crittenden's corps to also cross Stones River and then essentially they were going to sweep around Murfreesboro and occupy the town and essentially occupy Bragg's supply line, um, which was the, 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 uh, the railroad. Uh, so that was kind of what Rosecrans, that's what his intentions were um, the night of December 30th. Um, Bragg came up with his uh, midday on December 30th as, as he kind of saw how things were developing. Uh, so now you have the two armies po uh, poised for combat for the following day, which is Wednesday, December 31st, 1862. Uh, the Confederates, uh, in this case, got off a little sooner. Uh, the Confederates uh, launched their attack, I'd say about 6.15 in the morning. Uh, the first units that strike are John P. McCown's division, which is on the, the far Confederate left, uh, three brigades, um, a lot of a lot of far western troops in those brigades. Uh, Matthew Duncan Hector's uh, dismounted Texas Cavalry Brigade was really the first brigade to get into action. Um, they strike the uh, the right of uh, Johnson's division, uh, which was under uh, August Villick, uh, one of my, one of my favorite federal generals of the Civil War. Um, uh, strikes his brigade and. Um, General Kirk's brigade, which was adjacent to it, right around 6.15 or 6.20 in the morning. Um, I don't know if I would necessarily call it a, a surprise. I mean, the Federals kind of knew the Confederates were around. They didn't expect to get hit at 6.15 in the morning. Uh, so I guess a, a, a bit of a, a tactical uh, surprise, maybe not so much a strategic one, um, but a very successful shock attack. Um, now, Ector's brigade takes some pretty heavy casualties. Uh, they, they run into, uh, you know, Kirk's brigade are all veteran troops. Uh, Battery E, the first Ohio light artillery, is one of the first units that's engaged, and they're one of the crack artillery units in the Army. 
Um, they're engaged right away. Uh, Ector takes quite a, quite a few lumps, but is successful at driving Kirk's brigade off the field. Uh, Kirk's brigade in the course of retreating, they retreat towards the west, running right through Willick's command, which sends that command into confusion. And by 645, the Confederates have two federal brigades on the run. Uh, and there is a, 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 a relic here that I want to share just because it means so much to me. Um, I have actually a heart image uh, that belong, that is an image of uh, Private Julius Waite of uh, Battery E, the first Ohio Light Artillery, who was actually killed at Stones River in the opening moments of the battle. Wow, that's incredible. How, how did you come across that? I actually bought it from a uh, collector friend in Tennessee. Uh, who wow. had it in his collection for a number of years, and he knew he knew how much Stones River meant to me. So that's he, very uh, cool. Yeah, so it, it, it one of my prized uh, pr prized pieces of my Civil War collection. So the Confederate attack uh, starts off uh, extremely well. Um, the fighting uh, throughout the morning of the thirty first is you know as I've kind of uh, gotten into writing the story. Uh, was uh, pretty ferocious um, on both sides. It was a, a very hard-fought battle. Um, uh, Davis's division, which is the next federal division that is that is hit by Bragg's uh, this audacious morning attack, puts up a hell of a fight. But they're driven off the field by eight o'clock. Uh, the next division uh, in, in the Cook's Corps that really uh, make uh, the general makes a name for himself is General Phil Sheridan's division. Uh, three brigades um, spread out south of the Wilkinson Pike. The first one uh, under Joshua Sill is engaged probably, or I'd say around 715. Uh, Sill is killed pretty early on in the battle. I know later than 730 or eight o'clock. Um, but the whole time, it, the, the, the Confederates, as they are um, making these assaults, they're making a, a, a right sweep. Um, so if you can imagine the line is like this, and the Confederates are slowly turning it in this direction and driving the Federals uh, northwards. Um, as I said, Johnston's division was, was uh, driven off fairly quickly. Uh, Davis's division wasn't long after. Uh, Sheridan's division, however, makes just a tremendous fight um, and they, they move, they change positions multiple times, each time moving a little closer to the Wilkinson Pike. Uh, eventually his division is wrapped almost like a fish hook, uh, with a portion of it, uh, south of the Wilkinson Pike and then curving around and going up along the edge of the Cedars, um, fighting multiple Confederate divisions at different times and just inflicting tremendous casualties. Uh, as for you know, Sheridan's, uh, uh, brigade commanders, all three of them would be killed on the first day of the battle. Uh, Sill was first, uh, George W. Roberts was second, and uh, Frederick Schaefer was killed a little later, closer to the Nashville Pike. But just uh, Sheridan's division took 40% casualties, um, wow. almost all of it between 8, 8 and 11 a.m. Uh, so just, uh, as I said, tremendous, probably some of the uh, hardest fighting on the battlefield occurred there. But the fighting that occurred afterwards wasn't much lighter. Um, the, if you go to Stones River 
a national battlefield today, the, the portion of the battle that I just described to you has been completely developed. Um, you, you, I, I, I could probably send you to the gas station that's it, at the intersection of where the battle started, and you could follow a bit along Gresham Lane, but by and large where Sheridan's men fought is now shopping centers and malls. I think there's a hospital. That's uh, a shame. Uh, I-24 I runs right through the... I mean, the, the southern portion of the field, which which to me is, is crucial to understanding this battle, um, is by and large lost. Um, it exists in the minds of us historians. Um, the, and the, the, the city of Murfreesboro, just the, the tremendous amount of growth that they've seen just since I've become aware of the battle. You know, I first traveled there in 2001, and it might have been a, a town of 50,000 is people. I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a nice burg, but it was, uh, I think now it's, it's well over a hundred thousand, maybe being approaching 150,000. There's been a tremendous, um, uh, development, a lot of housing projects, a lot of apartments, mm -hmm. you name it. So really the Southern portion of the field uh, is very difficult to interpret because so much of it is under, you know, modern concrete. Mm -hmm. The center portion of the field, however, is the core of the national park. So uh, one of the most famous features of Stones River is known as the cedars. Uh, the cedar forest that's located between the Nashville Pike and the Wilkinson Pike. Uh, lots of limestone outcroppings within sinkholes. Uh, <laughs> pretty uh, unpleasant uh, terrain to have to fight in. Uh, but a lot of the battle is fought within those woods. Uh, the uh, two divisions that, that do most of the fighting in there, both are, both are part of George Thomas's Corps, uh, Negley's division, uh, which only had two of its three brigades at Stones River, so it was on the smaller side. And then Lovell Russo's division, which actually had four brigades, making it the largest uh, division on the battlefield, uh, one of the key components of Russo's division is one uh, many people may be familiar with called the regular brigade, uh, which is the uh, 15th, 16th, 18th, and 19th U.S. infantry. So all the uh, regular infantry in the Army were consolidated into one brigade, literally on the cusp of the campaign. So these guys, are, they're all regulars, but they're fighting together for the first time. Mm -hmm. um, so as I said, the, the Confederate um, assaults have, have, have been very bloody, but have been successful in driving the Federal Army a, a good mile or so off its original line. Uh, the attacks that occur between uh, 10 o'clock and noon against um, uh, Negley's division and, and, and Sheridan's division was still in position at that point are some of the, the bloodiest of the entire battle. Um, in particular, Patton Anderson's uh, brigade, which is, uh, uh, I think, uh, all Mississippi regiments with the 45th Alabama uh, included, uh, just take stunning uh, casualties uh, charging against uh, Negley's division in particular. Um, I, may, I may be off by a little bit here, but I think the 29th Mississippi lost 62 killed and 139 wounded in probably a half hour. And the, the frightening part about this was, you know, as the soldiers described afterwards, it all occurred over about an acre of ground. And it, the, the area is now known as, you know, as the Mississippians half acre, Hell's half acre. Um, the, the 29th Mississippi wasn't the only one. The 30th Mississippi took 200 and 
50 casualties by themselves um, in that same area and in that same amount of time. And what amounted to an unsuccessful attack. I mean, they go up and they try to attack uh, Negley's men and Negley's men have a fantastic position as long as they don't have to retreat. And after Sheridan's, Sheridan basically fights his command to its, its last round of ammunition and they withdraw about 11 o'clock. Well, once they withdraw, that opens Negley's right to being turned, which it is very quickly. Uh, there is a second line of Confederate attacks that are coming behind Anderson. Chalmers was another uh, Mississippi brigade that got really chewed up up by the uh, Cowan Burnt House. Uh, they were really the first attack against the Round Force, which you know most people are familiar with the Hazen Brigade Monument at, uh, at Stones River. So Chalmers is uh, defeated by 1030. Anderson, not long after, maybe by 11 o'clock. Shortly after 11, there is a, a, an additional line of Confederate troops that are moving in. Um, on the left, you've got AP Stewart's uh, brigade, uh, most, mostly Tennesseans. And on his right is Daniel Donaldson's brigade, which basically marches up in, in the wake of Chalmers' assault against the Round Forest. Uh, AP Stewart's uh, brigade is, I, I would largely say, is I would give them credit for finally breaking uh, Sheridan's hold uh, on the Wilkinson Pike and Negley's. Uh, I say that as more of a matter of timing as opposed to anything special that AP Stewart is, certainly a fine uh, commander and his troops were uh, certainly worthy of, of credit. Um, but the fact was that the preceding Confederates that had just, you know, kind of hit this line over and over again uh, had, had, had worn themselves out and worn out the Federals. And more importantly, uh, expended most of the federal ammunition. So as Negley's getting his right turn, he's also on ammunition. And, you know, there's all sorts of, you know, uh, talk out there about, oh, we'll hold the ground with the bayonet and so on and so forth. Well, there are very few uh, bayonet wounds in the Civil War because the troops generally didn't get into that close contact. It looks good and for the movies, but... <laughs> it, it, yeah, it, it, and it's just, it's not to say it never happened because it certainly did, but it doesn't, it was not... Certainly not the norm. Um, and as I said, you know, Negley's, Negley's out of division. His right is turned. The Confederates are actually in his rear. Um, when you, as I said, these units that had struck the right wing are still moving. Um, so you still have Claiborne's division. You still have McCown's division. You have all of Cheatham's division now engaged and now Withers' division. So you've got essentially four Confederate divisions all moving in this same general direction. Um, and they're starting to loop around uh, Negley's spot. So uh, Negley retreats. Um, I, I'd say they, they were moving out by 1130 at the latest, maybe by noon. Uh, they were leaving the Cedars. In the meantime, Russo's brigade had, or Russo's division uh, uh, had been sent in uh, basically to relieve Sheridan. Uh, he was supposed to come in on Sheridan's right. But Russo's got the problem of trying to advance through these cedars. Now, if you would, if you would go, you know, the listeners want to go to Stones River today. Imagine, if you will, lining up 1,400 men shoulder to shoulder and then trying to march through those, the, this forest and not lose. You, you got to keep everybody in line because, you know, you have regimental and company lines. You got to keep everybody in line and you got to be able to see what's in front of you. Mm -hmm. And 
you can't do either of those in the cedars. It is a, a, a hellacious place to, to try to fight. Uh, it's a hellacious place to try to advance. And it's even a more hellacious place to try to retreat through. And as the Federals found out that morning, uh, you know, getting into the cedars was all fine, well and good. Getting out was a whole different story. And that, that, that dynamic place for the Confederates as well. Now their attacks have been very successful thus far in the battle. They've driven, they're continuing to drive the federal army. It's coming at a, a, a very high cost. And that cost is going to be exacerbated in kind of this critical period of between, say, 11 a.m. and 1 p.m., where the Confederates are now driving Negley and Russo out of the Cedars and then approaching really what becomes their, their objective for the day is the Nashville Pike. The Confederates do succeed in driving Russo out of the Cedars, and then they run into some more Union reinforcements from Crittenden's wing, which is uh, sent west to uh, to fight them along Asbury Road. Um, they, by and large, drive the Federals back, but in the process, they have exhausted themselves. Uh, the men are out of ammunition. They have been on the go, a lot of them, since 4 a.m. They've been uh, marching since 6.15 uh, they have been fighting for six to seven hours. Um, I think that the the cedars themselves, just the terrain and in the in the thick woods, had the effect of gutting the Confederate uh, formations that actually made it through. That they didn't have really the strength to go much further once they got through the woods. Um, you know, it's an interesting thing. You know, you think how many men a regiment will take into action, and as a, as a regiment moves and it deploys and whatnot, there's usually a, uh, there's a bit of a there's a, a leakage of men that are leaving the ranks. Of course, you have ones that are killed and wounded. Um, think, too, that sometimes when a man was wounded, maybe his brother stays behind to care for him or maybe a couple comrades stay behind. So what starts out as a regiment with 300 men, by the time you get through the first engagements, maybe down to 250 maybe mm -hmm. 220. And then you go through the Cedars where there's all sorts of Federals that uh, are being captured. And these Federals have to be escorted back, right? So now you've got more men off the line that are coming off the line to escort these prisoners back. So right. your 220 is now down to 180. And then you take some casualties because you get out of the Cedars and, oh, that, that wily old Rosecrans is lined up hub after hub of artillery cannon <laughs> on the other side of the open plain. And he just lets loose on you when you come out of the woods. So when you started off with 300 men that morning, by the time you are, you know, we're at this critical point in the battle where, you know, the, the objective for the day is 200 yards in front of you. It's the Nashville Pike. Uh, half of your command isn't there anymore or worse. Or maybe some of them have just wandered off. Maybe you're down to 100 men. I know some of the Confederate accounts I run into are, were complaining about how, how few men they had left at this point in the battle. And they just, there just wasn't the numbers there to contest with Rosecrans for control of the Nashville Pike, which as I said, by the afternoon of December 31st, that was the key that was in play for both sides. Mm -hmm. It was critical for Rosecrans to hold that Nashville Pike. And it was equally critical for Bragg to break it. Um, if, if Rosecrans can hold, if he can hold through the rest of the day, he's got an open supply line to Nashville. He's got another 40,000 troops uh, two days' march away. 
um, that he could start pulling in. He's got lots of supplies built up in Nashville. Uh, he's got lots of troops in Nashville that can escort those wagons to the army. And then once they get there, they, they're reinforcements too. So if he can keep the pike open, even with as bad as things went for the federal army on December 31st, he's got a chance to win this battle. Mm-hmm. Bragg, on the other hand, has pretty much gambled everything on this uh, on this attack plan of his. Now, it succeeded, but it was far more costly than he anticipated. And as we start you know, finishing up on December 31st, uh, Bragg gets increasingly more desperate to break the, conf- the, the uh, Union hold on the Nashville Pikes. So he actually starts pulling over brigades from Breckenridge's division um, to attack the Round Forest, which, you know, of course, was one being held by Hazen, um, amongst other troops. Hazen held it for several of the attacks, but there are other Union uh, brigades that were brought in uh, as well. Milo Haskells was one of them, certainly had a prominent role. Um, but as Bragg brings these, these brigades over, they're sent into action essentially piecemeal, and they're sent up the same attack route that Donaldson's brigade and Chalmers' brigade had taken earlier and had taken tremendous casualties. Actually, the, the um, 8th Tennessee, which was in Donaldson's brigade, uh, lost 306 killed and wounded in one of those attacks against the Round Forest. I mean, they were also fighting Crust Brigade. They got into a really tight spot. Um, the 16th Tennessee, which was their uh, uh, one of their brigade mates, lost 207 uh, attacking the Round Forest. Um, so you know, the heaviest Confederate casualties occur kind of in this, this core area of the battlefield today, which is now part of the National Park. Um, but as the afternoon develops, Bragg's sending up you know, brigade after brigade to try, to try to break this Union hold on the Nashville to really break the hold at the Round Forest, but also try to break it with, you know, the other brigades that are lined up along the pike. And he's just getting nowhere. Um, The troops are spent, they're exhausted, they've taken heavy casualties. And as the night closes, the federal army is is taking quite a shellacking, but it's intact. And it is now in very good defensive ground guarding uh, that they got to, they have kept the Nashville pike. Uh, they mm-hmm. held their ground. They ultimately held their ground. Um, a lot of hard fighting, but I would give a lot of credit to the artillery. Uh, the, the Union artillery at Stones River was vastly superior to their Confederate counterparts, and they had the advantage of having far better ground to deploy over. And the Confederates, you got to think that that cedar forest was quite an effective barrier to any kind of wheeled traffic. And there wasn't really a way around it, uh, short of going through the round forest, which is where the Union Army's at. So you've got your infantry that can drive three miles, but you can't get your artillery north of the Wilkinson Pike. So what are you going to do? You know, yeah, Bragg was was very successful to the point that he wasn't successful anymore. (laughs) Um, so when you look at you know, casualties, only Braxton Bragg could have. <laughs> <laughs> so it, as I, you know, when I first started working on the book, um, you know, being a, a, a descendant of Union, uh, all Union soldiers, um, I, I, I had respect for the Confederate infantrymen. That respect, as I've written this book, has only grown, and it's grown substantially. Uh, these were some of the toughest 
fighting men that I, I have come across in my 20 some years of research. They're just the, the ability uh, that they were able to drive as far as they were at Stones River is a testament to their courage. I mean, just, just absolutely phenomenal. Uh, questions about their leadership. Um, uh, not so much at the regimental or brigade level, but maybe at the divisional and certainly at the core level. Um, but yeah, just uh, uh, December 31st belongs to the Army of Tennessee, and I, I think rightly deserved. They, their, their fighting was, uh, was breathtaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and extraordinarily costly. Um, you get into you know the end of the battle or the end end of December thirty first as the fighting kind of uh, uh, peters out. Of course, night night falls kind of early in December. It's you know four thirty, uh, maybe five o'clock at the latest, and the, the battle you know the fighting ends. Uh, the Confederates lost a little more than eight thousand men in the day. Uh, Union casualties are somewhat higher, but it's offset by a bit that there's a lot of captures. A a lot of men were listed as missing. They're actually captured. Um, The Union Army probably lost in the area code of of 10, I'd say 11 to 12,000 men that day, but about 4,000 or more of them are, are men that were captured. Uh, so from the standpoint of, you know, blood for blood, the, the armies are kind of equal, but the Confederates have, you know, a, a, a pretty good uh, uh, crop of prisoners that they've taken. They also took 29 artillery pieces. That, that's, you know, kind of a mark of uh, winning a battle when you're taking your, your, your enemy's artillery. They took quite a bit of it, most of it on the right wing, but some also in the center. Mm-hmm. Um, the challenges of trying to get those artillery pieces through the cedars were were. I won't say insurmountable, but very difficult. And uh, especially if you don't have horses, uh, I give the Confederate infantrymen credit. Uh, when they came up to attack a battery, they didn't really necessarily target the gunners. They targeted the horses. Mm. They knew that if you shoot down the horses, that artillery battery isn't going anywhere. And right. we can, you know, once we knock down the horses, then we can plink off the artillerymen and then the battery's ours. So there, there was some, uh, there, there was some uh, good, uh, tactical thinking uh, and how the Confederates operated here. Um, all that to say, December 31st, you know, Bragg is convinced that he's won a, a tremendous, you know, a tremendous battlefield victory and telegraphs as such to Richmond. You know, we won this great victory. We've got, you know, I think he claims 30 pieces of artillery, thousands of prisoners. We've driven the Federals three miles. We're just waiting for Rosecrans to retreat. All of that was true, except Rosecrans didn't retreat. <laughs> there was um, Rosecrans, you know, he he knows that since he has he, he has won his battle to protect the Nashville Pike, it's simply a matter of calling for reinforcements and outlasting Braggs. He knows that Bragg took very heavy casualties to, to do what he did. And so we move into January 1st. You know, there's some debate within the Union High Command of whether they should retreat or not. Um, that night, there's actually a council war. Uh, Thomas rather famously says, you know, this army doesn't retreat. Um, and the army doesn't. Um, there's another piece of this, you know, Rosecrans did a personal reconnaissance that night uh, going north on the Nashville Pike. There was some thought that, well, we could do a, we could do a tactical withdrawal to the north bank of Overalls Creek, which was only a couple miles away, extremely defensible ground. There was no way Bragg was going to 
going to be able to drive them from there and then maybe look at uh, you know reconstituting the army and doing another flanking maneuver in some other way. Um, Rosecrans rides out, you know, probably around midnight and sees some fires um, and jumps to the wrong conclusion thinking that's the Confederate army and they are now in our rear. Well, actually what it was, it was Rosecrans' own cavalrymen who chose to ignore Rosecrans' direction and not light any fires. And after being several nights under the cold, they're like, the hell with this, I'm going to light a fire. <laughs> that's what he sees is his own cavalrymen lined up along the Nashville Pike lighting these fires, not the Confederates looping around him. All that to say, he, he decides he's going to stay in Murfreesboro. He's staying in his position. So you get into January 1st and you have these two armies that are you know, a couple hundred yards apart and pretty much fought themselves out, um, almost like, uh, you know, two brothers after they scrap in their bedroom for 10 <laughs> minutes. You know, one's on either side of the room. Neither one of them's willing to leave, but neither one of them is neither one's willing to consider, you know, concede defeat. Like the final and, round of a Rocky fight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And. January 1st is largely a, a day of, of kind of minimal activity. Now, Bragg um, does send out a, a, a pretty good-sized, uh, we'll call it a reconnaissance in force, to kind of test the issue to see, you know, is, is Rosecrans really intended to stick around or not? Uh, this reconnaissance in force takes a pretty, uh, pretty bloody rap on the nose. And decides, yeah, Rosecrans isn't going anywhere, so yeah, we'll, we'll go back to where we were. We'll, you know, let sleeping dogs lie here. In the process, on, on January 1st, Rosecrans decides to send a few brigades across to the east side of Stones River. Uh, these were from the left wing, really kind of going back to what his original battle plan was. Um, moves a few brigades across the, to the east side of Stones River. So now the army is on both the east and west sides of the river. Now remember, uh, Bragg already uh, still has a portion of Breckenridge's division on the east side of the river as well. Actually, all, almost uh, eventually all of it will be back on the east side of the river. And Bragg's looking at this as he's got to do something to break the logjam here. because he, you know, He's considered he's won a victory. He just needs to convince Rosecrans you know, just you need you just need to say uncle and leave. And Rosecrans wasn't having it. And Rosecrans was convinced that if he just, you know, he called himself holdfast sometimes, kind of like a wrestler that comes up with their own, uh, you know, <laughs> their own stage name. You know, you know, he calls himself holdfast. Um, he's convinced that if he holds fast to his position at uh, at Murfreesboro, that Bragg will retreat. And ultimately, he's proven right. So. January 1st passes with not a whole lot of activity. January 2nd passes without a whole lot of activity until about three in the afternoon. At this point, uh, Bragg feels that his, he needs to convince Rosecrans to leave. And the way he's going to do that, uh, the, the, the imperative is he's going to strike this isolated force on the east side of Stones River. And he arrays, he tasked Breckenridge's command with doing that. Now, I don't know that it really changes what happens here, but it's kind of interesting to understand the command relationship that Breckenridge and Bragg had. Uh, Breckenridge was a Kentuckian. He was also former vice president of the United States. So he was uh, uh, certainly the most well-known member of the Army of Tennessee, had a lot of influence on the men. 
and was fiercely protective of his Kentuckians, the Orphan Brigade, you know, kind of a, a famous unit of the Army of Tennessee. Prior to Stones River, literally, uh, I think December 26th is when this event happened, uh, there was a soldier, uh, I want to say in the 6th Kentucky, who was executed uh, for deserting. Now, that's not unusual in really either army at this point, certainly not in the Army of Tennessee, but the problem was these Kentuckians did not feel themselves bound by the laws of the Confederacy because Kentucky wasn't part of the Confederacy. And there was a, a, a rule or law in place that essentially forced, you, know, we, you had you know, the first year enlistments for many of these troops, they only enlisted for one year. At the end of that one year enlistment, um, the Confederate Congress had passed the, 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 the Conscription Act that essentially extended their enlistments for the duration of the war. Well, the Kentuckians felt that that law did not apply to them because they were not members of the Confederacy. They were not, you know, not represented in Congress. Um, all that to say, this 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 Kentucky soldier uh, goes on French leave to go visit some sick family in Kentucky and is apprehended by a bounty hunter and taken back to the army and then sentenced for execution. Uh, Breckenridge took this matter on personally, appealed to Bragg on multiple occasions for clemency, and Bragg denied it. And Breckenridge was livid. The men in the Orphan Brigade, as you know, they were incensed. So as they're going into this fight at Murfreesboro, you know, Bragg is the devil himself. And now Bragg is pulling Breckenridge aside and tasking his division with attacking this isolated Union force. And Breckenridge, Breckenridge, I don't think fully knew what the Union had in store for him, but he had inklings this wasn't a good idea. Mm-hmm. And he protested pretty vociferously to Bragg that uh, this, is, this is a mistake. I don't want to do this. And Bragg says, well, you know, tough cookies. You got your orders now. You need to execute them. Um, so Bragg's attack does not begin until almost four o'clock. So once again, we're talking early January. It's going to be dark by five. The attack really kind of kicks off right 345, four o'clock. Initially, it is successful. Uh, Breckenridge is, uh, I think he has four brigades that are, that are in action. Um, they hit the Union, which is now the Union left. Uh, knock a couple of brigades off of a, a low elevation, which is now, surprise, surprise, a housing development, and um, dry, starts driving them over Stones River. As, they are, as the Confederates are advancing north along the river, they are in, in Rosecrans on, you know, on Rosecrans' side of the river. Um, obviously, they're concerned the Confederates are coming to attack. Well, uh, John Mendenhall, who was the chief of artillery for uh, General Crittenden, sees an opportunity here. And he starts gathering up every stray artillery battery he can lay his hands on. And he starts lining them up um, to the southwest of McFadden's Ford, basically hub to hub. Eventually, he lines up 57 guns. And as the Confederates move basically in front of him and present their flanks, all of these guns open fire. And it is a, it is a charnel house uh, for Breckenridge's division. Um, these guns are all firing. And in the meantime, as, as Breckenridge's men are kind of stumbling in the, in the river plain here, 
uh, on the Union side of the river, there's a bit of drama too. Um, you've got these retreating brigades from Crittenden's um, uh, Corps uh, that are you know, crossing the you know, Stones River in a bit of a panic. Um, John F. Miller's brigade from Negley's division is at McFadden's Ford and sees this going on. Um, there's, a, there's discussion amongst the, the, the senior officers about staging a counterattack across the river, but there's no general around to give the order. Uh, so eventually John Miller, who was at this time, he was a colonel, he was a colonel commanding the brigade, uh, essentially gives the order on his own authority uh, to stage a counterattack. It's actually staged by uh, uh, two brigades uh, from Negley's division, his and Timothy Stanley's, with a lot of help from a lot of these troops that are retreating. Uh, a very dramatic moment. Um, the, the Union, you, know, you have these 57 guns thundering um, uh, to their right. And all of a sudden you have uh, a couple thousand Union infantrymen charging across Stones River and attacking the Confederates in front. Uh, the Confederate attack falls apart uh, fairly quickly uh, at a cost of about 1,800 casualties. So that was in an hour. Um, the Miller's uh, counterattack is, is one of the few occasions during the battle where the Union Army actually captures some battle flags and some are actually the only time they capture any artillery. Uh, they capture a Burns battery and they capture the flag of the 26th Tennessee in, in, in the course of this engagement. Um, and essentially by 530 at night, the two armies were essentially where they were earlier that afternoon with the exception that uh, the Federals lost, I think eight or 900 casualties and the Confederates 1800. So you just added to the butcher's bill, but we changed nothing. Mm -hmm. Well, like World War One style, almost. Almost, almost. Like I said, it was it was a it's a tremendous fight on the evening of January second. But essentially, it 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 returns things back to status quo. Well, status quo for Rosecrans is a victory. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Bragg was the one that couldn't. You know, he had to break this logjam, and then once he realized that he couldn't, uh, his his options were were pretty much it's time to get out of Dodge, and. The two army, it starts raining the night of January 2nd. It rains through most of the day on January 3rd. There's, there's a small scale kind of a parting engagement uh, that night uh, with one of uh, Russo's brigades. Uh, I think Benjamin Scribner's brigade was, uh, was the one involved. It was a, a night, uh, almost a nighttime engagement. You know, accounts on it are fairly sparse, but there was something. Um, didn't really change anything, but it's really the last major fighting of the Battle of Stones River because that night, um, Bragg's got—I uh, won't call it a rebellion—but he's got a—he's uh, got a problem on his hands. Um, most of his senior generals have come to him and tell him it's time to put this army in retreat. Um, and the logic that they have is that the army has so spent itself, um, as long as suffered so many casualties, that if if the if Rosecrans makes a determined push, they're worried that the army is going to fall apart. Mm -hmm. And the, the smart thing to do would be to put this army on the road, get it back behind the Duck River, behind some good defensive ground, and recuperate because we we are we, we are fought out. And Bragg doesn't really accept that when it's first proffered to him, but he has a change of heart overnight. 
And through January 3rd, he's starting to get the army ready to go. And they all start pulling out that night. He, he conducts the retreat magnificently, although I'll offer that Rosecrans doesn't pursue very vigorously either. I think both armies were probably pretty happy to finally draw apart. Uh, Bragg right. moves south towards uh, uh, Manchester, um, moves south you know, across the Duck River and then realizes Rosecrans isn't uh, following and actually ends up being closer to Tullahoma, which kind of sets the stage for that campaign six months later. Um, so that's kind of the, you know, we've covered a lot of ground here, covered this whole battle in, you know, almost two hours, but the Stones River is considered a union. It was the only union victory at this period of the war. I mean, Fredericksburg was a tremendous defeat. Uh, uh, Chickasaw Bayou was a smaller scale defeat, but Stones River was a, a draw that was the Union held is like Perryville all over again. We held the field afterwards, but we, the Union Army sure took a, a, a lot of lumps uh, to get there. Uh, but this, from a political standpoint, Stones River was very important uh, to President Lincoln sent a personal note of thanks uh, to Rosecrans and his army for their victory. Uh, really kind of saved the Union's bacon at a, at a critical moment. Mm-hmm. And the whole time, I mean, we were talking, we touched on it earlier, the Emancipation Proclamation is starting to now take effect. It's jab, we've passed January 1st, 1863. The, the, the war is, is, it's changing. It's changing from just, you know, this, this narrow, we just need to reunite the union to now this is, we're, we're going to emancipate the slaves. We're going to change the, the, the basis of how this country is going to operate for, you know, from here on out. And a Union victory at this point uh, helped give that Emancipation Proclamation some teeth. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the, uh, the enslaved um, people of the South were not shy about availing themselves of that opportunity when it came. The, the Army of the Cumberland would eventually employ uh, thousands of, of African Americans that, that, that came out of slavery and would join the Army as, as uh uh, some of them, you know, as Teamsters uh, working in the commissary department, some of them attached themselves to regiments and were cooks. I mean, you name it. Um, and then they joined the, the U.S. Colored Troops. So the victory at Stones River uh, kind of helps set the plate for those things happening. That helps transform the war, too, as we go into, you know, 1863, you know, the impact of uh, uh, the U.S. Colored Troops on the direction of the war, um, emancipation in general, what that meant politically. You know, mm-hmm. setting up the, you know, the issues for the presidential election of 1864, the gubernatorial elections of 1863. Um, so, as I said, it, it's one of those battles that it, it was enormously costly. It is the second costliest battle in the Western theater at almost 25,000 casualties, more than Shiloh, uh, somewhat less than Chickamauga, but with a lot smaller armies than at Chickamauga. You know, at Chickamauga, you had 71,000 Confederates and 58,000 Federals. Here we had 45,000 Federals and 37,000 Confederates. So you had a, a smaller um, smaller armies, but the, the casualty rate is, I think, the highest of the war. It's even higher than Gettysburg. It's it's above 32. It's almost 33%. That's what I was going to ask you. I was going to say, I thought, I thought for when you compare the size of the armies, it was the highest percentage casualties. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it is. Which is not, I don't know if that's we should take any pride in or not, but it's, you know, historical fact. Now I, I would offer, you know, a lot of those casualties were men that were captured on both sides, but 
you know, they were, they were lost in their armies for the period of time. So the other, you know, besides the broader national impacts of Stones River, it does set the federal army up for this drive to Chattanooga, which is really turns into the major, you know, you've got the drive on Vicksburg, which is considered the major uh, federal endeavor in the first half of 1863. The major federal endeavor in the West in the second half of 1863 is to take Chattanooga. And that's, you know, so the Stones River kind of sets the army up for the Tullahoma campaign that summer, which is the springboard to the invasion of Georgia, uh, Chickamauga, and then, of course, Missionary Ridge in Chattanooga, the anniversary of which I'll, you know, here we passed in the last couple of days. Mm-hmm. Um, so what did it do to the generals? Um, for Rosecrans, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, I, I, I'm a wrestling fan, so I'll use some wrestling analogies here. <laughs> uh, Rosecrans just won WrestleMania six. He just beat Hulk Hogan. He's the new <laughs> ultimate warrior. Um, <laughs> he's the new champ. Uh, he is riding high. The, 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 of course, the country is you know, relieved that we had a victory somewhere. Um, very, but this, this sets up, you know, Rosecrans is, you know, at this point considered one of the leading, uh, one of the leading lights in the federal army, really a talent for the future. Uh, you can almost put him and Grant on the same, same level at this point. Yeah. I mean, Grant, when you look at 1862 outside of Shiloh, what's Grant really done? Mm-hmm. Not a whole lot. And what's Rosecrans done well, you know, he's, he's been victorious at Iuka, he's been victorious at Corinth, and now at Stones River. Now, granted, Grant was over him at both Corinth and Iuka, but what you know, wasn't really much of a presence, certainly not at Corinth. Um, Do you but, think that shapes the way that, I know there's a lot of debate um, amongst historians, Grant and Rosecrans, who's, mm-hmm. kind, of, who's kind of in the right there, and, and is Grant disparaging Rosecrans and his memoirs. Yes. Yeah. Uh, they, they, there, there is a personal enmity between these two that is just unfortunately very unsavory for both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know from Grant's side, I don't know how much of it was just out and out rivalry. I don't know how much of it was his staff feeding Grant information about Rosecrans. Uh, no, Rosecrans was a, a, not the easiest personality to like. He was, I call him high maintenance. He's a high maintenance individual. Um, tends to need very, uh, need a lot of things. Um, pretty, you know, like brag, very argumentative. Um, but yeah, there's, there's definitely a rivalry there between the two of them. And as I said, at, at this point in the wars, we're talking you know, early January of 1863, uh, they're kind of competing for the same prize. Um, whether they, whether they know it or not, um, you know, they're both, they, I think both ultimately have their eyes set on Halleck's job in, in, in Washington, uh, Rosecrans, of course, you know, oh, I have you know, no desire for higher command and, uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the same well, thing from Grant, you know, Grant, oh, I'm just, you know, I'd just be happy to lead a corporal's guard. Oh, baloney. Well, since um, we're on the topic and this is moving fast forwarding a bit, uh, Obviously, then we're going to get Chickamauga and then Chattanooga. Uh, Bragg lays siege to Rosecrans and the Army of the Cumberland mm-hmm. um, in Lookout Mountain and Missionary Ridge surrounding the city of Chattanooga. And there's the famous 
story of the cracker line and how Grant mm -hmm. is promoted and he comes in and he uh, busts this, you know, Raccoon Hill and all they come down to Tennessee and they bust this open. Mm -hmm. I've also heard a counter argument that Rosecrans and Thomas actually thought the men were in pretty good shape um, and that Thomas didn't want Rosecrans relieved of command. Uh, Thomas did not want promotion. How do you feel about that? I, 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 well, a, a, a number of different ways. Um, the, the, I know it's a little off topic, the, but... the, 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 the Army of the Cumberland was in, in fairly dire straits in Chattanooga. Now, were they on the precipice of falling apart? No, not at all. Uh, but they were not really in any condition to conduct any offensive operations to get themselves out of this jam they were in. Um, the War Department finally finally figuring out that, you know, the Union Army is a lot bigger than the Confederate Army. I bet if we dispatch some reinforcements from these armies and aren't <laughs> doing anything, we might be able to accomplish something. It just, it blows my mind that after Gettysburg, the Army of the Potomac moves into Virginia and is idle for essentially three to four months. And there's ne not until Chickamauga is fought and lost, does it dawn on Edwin M. Stanton that, hmm, I might be able to, I mean, we could probably scare, spare some of these troops to send out West. What do you well, think? Well, they try to send Burnside. He just won't go. <laughs> <laughs> well, Burnside's busy in Eastern Tennessee. He's just, but that's the different discussion. But, you know, the 11th and 12th Corps uh, was a, a brilliant move to send them to the West, um, in part because all the Ohioans that were in there, but that's all, you know, <laughs> just some state pride coming. Hey, Hooker, Hooker makes a kind of, uh, reinstates his reputation a bit he I does guess. he he performs quite well in the western theater uh very uh, uh, yeah as does his troops certainly better than the 11th corps in particular performed far better in the west than they did in the east the 12th corps fought pretty well everywhere they were at so i want to throw them under the bus but it yes there's there's though, definitely the some uh, animus between uh grant and rosecrans that only got worse as, as the war progressed and it certainly got a lot worse after the war was over. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Rosecrans was a member of Congress in the 1880s uh, from California. And there was a bill uh, that came up to essentially grant, uh, give Grant and his, uh, his wife uh, a pension. And Rosecrans, although, you know, uh, Grant was essentially penniless at this point. I mean, he got into some bad business deals and, you know, reputation, you know, it, it, Grant was a great general, apparently a very poor businessman. And, but anyway, the people, there were some folks in Congress that knew that, you know, Grant was in dire straits and they were trying to get this bill passed so that, you know, he had some income. And Rosecrans were, was adamantly opposed to it, not understanding that, you know, and the reason he was not, a, he was adamantly opposed to it is because he was convinced that Grant had ruined his career um, through misstatements and things that, you know, Grant had actively worked to ruin Rosecrans' reputation during the war. And he he did not forgive Grant to his dying day. And, you know, Grant's perceptions of Rosecrans have colored a lot of 20th century scholarship about Rosecrans. Because, I mean, his memoirs are widely quoted. Mm -hmm. uh, his judgments on the personalities of the war are largely accepted. Um so yeah, and, and yeah, Rosecrans, 
yeah, him and Grant, there's a, I forget the author's name, but there's an author out there that's wrote a pretty interesting book about it. I, I got through it and <laughs> almost wanted to throw my Grant memoirs out, but I, I, I can't bring myself to do that. But it is, wow. But yeah, interesting. I mean, even though, you know, Grant and Rosecrans couldn't stand each other, um, Rosecrans men, uh, to the day he died, just they, they adored him. Mm-hmm. They adored the man. I, the one thing I'll, I'll kind of uh, wrap up Rosecrans with after the war, he was, you know, he, 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 he had had command in Missouri, Missouri after being re- removed from command army of the Cumberland, but he was removed from that command as well. And end of the war, I think in Cincinnati without a, you know, without any, he wasn't even commanding troops at that point. So he was a rather discouraging end uh, to such a promising beginning. Um, but he moves west, moves to California after the war, um, becomes fairly successful, um, gets elected to Congress. And one of the things that was near and dear to his heart was the reconciliation of the North and the South. Um, in, his, in his final years, that was probably the, the one effort he spent more time on than anything else is developing relationships with uh, the men that wore the gray, because there was a lot of them that lived in California, surprisingly mm-hmm. enough. And when he died in March of 1898, one of the stipulations of his funeral was that when when he his pallbearers, he wanted eight, four Union men and four Confederates. And that's how he was born to his grave with four Union men and four Confederates. That's how much that reconciliation meant. And I'll put that into a broader perspective. 1898 is we're on the cusp of the Spanish-American War. A jingoistic and highly nationalistic event in American history. Um, Reconciliation of the sides is kind of necessary if you're going to go fight an enemy, right? Right. So it's time to, you know... one of the things that helped drive bearing the hatchet between the two sides, but you know, Rosecrans was, um, you know, a man of his times. Um, there's a nationalist fervor, and one of the ways to help that along is to um, uh, sew up this 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 bloody breach with half of the country. And part of that was maybe turning a bit of a blind eye to some of the civil rights abuses that had developed, uh, you know, with Jim Crow laws and things like that. So that's. You know, we're really going off the rails, but that's, you know, (laughs) that's, it's kind of, you know, that's what's interesting about history. It's all connected. Yeah. Um, You know, it it made me think too, you said, it's interesting that Stanton didn't think to send uh, troops West. I mean, Robert E. Lee sends Longstreet. uh, Exactly. Exactly. And and of course, and, 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 and Lee had a far smaller army than me did at that point. Yeah. Well, and then of course, Bragg and Longstreet have a falling out because, It's Bragg. Everybody has a fall out, falling out with Bragg, except his wife. Now, an interesting story about Bragg. Um, his wife's name, I think, was Louisa or Lou. Um, you know, Bragg lived until 1875. Uh, apparently, he and his wife had a wonderful marriage. Uh, they were very happy together. Um, so there was one person in this world that could get along with Braxton Bragg. It was his wife. Well, there's there's a uh, a podcast that I I listen to. Um, I, I've talked about it several times on my show, but the key battles of the Civil War. It's mm-hmm. with uh, Doctor Scott Rank and James Early. I don't know if you've mm-hmm. listened to that. 
Uh, I can't say I have, but go ahead. But, yeah, so I'd like to give them a shout out because it's a great podcast. And, and Professor Early talks about um, a TA he had in college. And he said, you know, when the Confederacy lost the Civil War, it was during the Mexican-American War when a cannonball rolled in the Braxton Braggs tent and failed to go off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, that, that, that's a funny story because Bra- uh, during during the days leading up to Stones River, when the Confederate Army is encamp at, at uh, Murfreesboro, that's a story Bragg told his staff officers. Really? <laughs> about his Mexican War experience. He thought it was funny. <laughs> and, you know, you think of it as like, all right, so your men are trying to kill you and you and it's a joke. Well, that's like Sheridan when he got uh when he gets covered in mud and, and he makes a comment about it. And I think uh, uh Jeb Stewart does too when he's they're picking the cherries, right? Before, <laughs> I think he makes a comment about it too. I think it's, there's a bunch of comments throughout the Civil War, near-death experiences, and they get they yeah. make comments about it instead of Yeah. Hard to imagine. One thing I didn't, you know, in the kind of the whole battle narrative we gave in and mentioned how close Rosecrans came to getting killed on multiple occasions on December 31st. He uh, just, you know, touched briefly on the battlefield presences of both men. Um, Once the battle started turning against Rosecrans, I'd say by nine o'clock, that man was in the saddle and he was riding all over that field, Mm -hmm. encouraging the men. He was a very physical presence. Um, he personally deployed a couple of brigades. Uh, he engaged, uh, there was one account that he engaged in a session of prayer with another regiment before they went into action. Uh, they might've been the 35th Indiana, which was a, an Irish regiment and Catholics. Um, he was, as I said, he was, it seemed like he was everywhere on his horse. He was riding bony, which is, you know, a, a black horse that he had, um, as he's riding along the Nashville Pike, this is sometime in the afternoon on December 31st, he, riding at his side is his uh, uh, chief of staff, Julius Garrishay. And Garrishay is beheaded right at Rosecrans' side by a cannonball. Um, uh, Garrishay's blood is spattered all over Rosecrans' overcoat. Um there were several members of his escort that were, were struck by bullets and, and killed or wounded during the battle. I mean, it didn't slow him up a whit. I mean, uh, Garrishay's uh, body falls on the ground at, basically at his feet. And this is his closest friend. I mean, Garrishay is like his, his muse. I mean, they are Garrishay's value to the Army of the Cumberland cannot be overstated because, you know, Rosecrans could kind of get a little incomprehensible at times. Mm-hmm. And Garrishay made sure everybody was straight with what the, what the chief wanted. And that's very much missed when Garfield comes into the picture. Garfield is no Garrishay. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, Rosecrans comes within uh, – he comes within a whisker – uh, of getting killed. I mean, think how that changes the battle. You right. know, if, I mean, if that, that, that cannonball had been uh, a foot or two uh, in a different direction, uh, you know, all of a sudden now Thomas is in command of the army of the Cumberland on right. the afternoon of December 31st. And how, I, I don't know how that, I mean, how different does that make? Yeah. Things? Right. Uh, you know, but yeah, he came very close to getting, uh, killed on multiple occasions. Braxton Bragg, on the other hand, is kind of a negligent, he's like a non-presence. 
there's two schools of thought on that. He was a non-presence because a he, I mean, he wasn't much of a field general, and he wasn't the kind of guy to go out there and get the troops all riled up. He just that just wasn't him. Mm-hmm. But the other school of thought is, you know what? His battle plan's working pretty well. He doesn't need to be out there encouraging the troops because they're already doing it. They're getting the job done. They don't yeah. need me out there to you know browbeat them. Whereas Rosecrans was uh, worried sick that his army was going to collapse. Mm-hmm. So he was out there and he's rallying the troops. It's a, it's a desperate move. Bragg didn't need to do a desperate move. It, he, he was winning the battle. Now there are a few accounts the, of him, you know, riding around particularly uh, by the uh, troops in Withers division, which, Oh, by the way, tend to view Bragg more favorably than the rest of the army. Um, there's some mention of him riding around and, you know, talk, jawing with a few of the troops and, you know, bragging about, you know, you know, no pun intended, um, <laughs> bragging about how many cannon they had captured and whatnot. But in those critical hours on the Nashville Pike, when, you know, his troops are, you know, they're just staging these uh, uh, unsupported, you know, single brigade attacks against, you know, by now thousands of Union troops and just getting slaughtered, he's nowhere to be seen. Mm-hmm. So, very much a contrast in styles. Um, Bragg doesn't doesn't bear up well under the comparison, but then then, I'll I'll reinforce that argument. Up until probably one o'clock, he didn't need to be. Right. Things were going his way. After that, yeah, you might want to get out front and, you know, fly the flag and, (laughs) you know, get get a little better control of your troops. Right, right. I just... That didn't happen. So as I said, you know, very different, you know, very different command styles. Um, and that's how they kind of work out in the battlefield. The other, the flip side of that is, and this is where, where it's going to catch up with the Rosecrans at Chickamauga. You know, the man didn't sleep very much, right? He was the first one up in the morning, last one to bed at night. And that's all final. You know, he was in his mid forties. That's all. You can do that for a few days. Mm-hmm. And that's what he had. By by the time he gets to the end of Stones River, he is exhausted because he's probably slept maybe two hours a day for the last week. Right. Imagine when you do that at Chickamauga and you try to stretch that over three weeks, which is about what you get when on September 19th and September 20th, uh, that he has his episode on the 20th doesn't surprise me. Mm -hmm. He had pushed himself beyond what he was physically capable of doing and mentally capable of handling. And Garishay, one of the jobs of the chief of staff is to look out for the chief. And Garishay never would have let that happen, in my, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, Garishay would have forced him uh, to get some proper rest. Yeah, like Garfield, John Rollins to Grant yeah, Gar- Garfield didn't. Like I said, Garfield was no garish. He wasn't by no means a bad man or bad general, but yeah, uh, Rosecrans needed garish at Chickamauga and he wasn't there because he died at Stones River. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think garish might have made a difference in Rosecrans' condition. How much would that change the battle? Hard to say, but you know, that's one thing. Fun thing about history is you always speculate. You know. Yeah, well, that, that makes sense. Well, we've been at it for almost two and a half hours. So okay. uh, is there a way listeners can uh, contact you? Or um, I know you got your website if you want to share that. With yeah, yeah. Honestly, the easiest way to find me is just type in Dan Master Civil War into Google. 
uh, two different sites will come up. One of them's uh, the, the Civil War Chronicles, which is my blog. I, I, <laughs> I publish probably far too frequently, but I publish frequently. Um, I have several posts going up this week. Of course, got the Battle of Franklin coming up, so there'll be a Battle of Franklin post. Um, a lot of Western theater stuff. Really the easiest thing to do, once you get into the blog, just click on a, a right near the top. It says index to the blog. And it is an index of all 660 posts. It's organized the top half by unit, the bottom half by engagements or campaigns or subjects. You know, feel free to search around. There, there's a lot of stuff, a lot, a lot of Western theater. That's fine, you know, my favorite. But there's there's a mix, both Union and Confederate. I, I, I'm trying to be a little more uh, bipartisan <laughs> as I get older. Um, but that, so that, that'll take you into the, the blog. Um, there's also, I also have a publishing website called Columbian Arsenal Press. I've written and published several books over the last couple of years. Um, if you're interested, feel free to go into the bookstore and shop around. There's some, uh, almost all Ohio units uh, is what I've published on, but feel free to dig in. Um, you'll be able to contact me directly through either website. Okay, great. Yeah, I'll put the links uh, to your site and to both sites in the episode description so listeners can click on it and, and check out your, your work. And okay. uh, I encourage them to do so. It's a fa- I've been through the website. It's fantastic. So, and like I said, you did, you did that blog for uh, our, my site a while back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love that. So listeners can check that one out too on Perryville. Okay. Well, thank you very much. It's been a great discussion. All right. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Civil War Center podcast. Please like, share, and subscribe to help the podcast grow. I hope you'll join us next week. And as always, please head to thecivilwarcenter.com to learn more. And you can find us on Patreon in the link below. Please consider donating to help this podcast continue. Have a great week.